Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Oh, yeah. Tell you something. I think you'll understand. When I say that something, I want to pod your cast. 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 Hello, everybody. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. America, the world. We want to pod your cast. Mm. That's not the name of this miniseries, but by God, I could not let that opportunity slide. Can you do a good Ed Sullivan, though? And so I want right, you, you to go. be prepared for excessive screaming. I feel like that's not great. I feel like I'm going to Lauren Michaels very, very quickly. Mm, Chevy. A famous New Yorker, you know, uh, Ed Sullivan, yeah. but such a weird voice. Shoo, what a weirdo. Shoo. Shoo, that's the word. Yeah, that's the turnkey word for Sullivan, right? We got a great yeah. shoe today. It sounds like we got a great I, I feel Ladies like I'm getting very Canadian. I don't know what's gentlemen. going on. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Chevy. For whatever reason, Chevy is the name that feels best to say in Lauren Michaels' voice. Oh, Chevy. Oh, Chevy. Chevy. He, well, Chevy. he has to sound disappointed. Oh, Chevy. Oh, Chevy. Chevy. Chevy, don't throw out slurs to our cast members, Chevy. <laughs> Jesus. Blame Chevy. Uh, blank Chevy? Is that what blank you just said? Chevy. Hello, everybody. This is a podcast called Blank Chevy. My name is Griffin mm. Newman. Mm. My name is David Sims. It's not called Blank Chevy. <laughs> mm, we're going to have to check the rule book on this one. But I think it might one be question. Yeah. This is just a, a question that just popped into my head, and this is really sure. a question for Ben. Uh, is the question, uh, do you want to hold my hand? <laughs> no. Sure. Yeah. No, not right now. That's not a thing we do right now. No, we um, can't do that now. When, if, this mm. Fletch reboot with John Hamm mm. that's being mm-hmm. discussed, yeah. you know, sure. if that actually comes to fruition, gets made, mm-hmm. are yeah. we going to... We're gonna cover that. That's that's like that's in the cow, right? To. We gotta we gotta yeah. do that, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I'm gonna be in it too, so we really right. gotta sure. talk about it. Right. Wait, have you guys right. started a campaign on the show to just get Ben in it? <laughs> no, well, we I just guess started it starts now. now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like we informally started the campaign four years ago or whatever to have Ben play Fletch, and now that that right. feels like it hasn't gained steam, I think the campaign should be for Ben to play the steak sandwich. Oh God! Mm. Yeah, because there are two of those. You could play either one. Either he one. Could play the I'm steak sandwich. Range. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I could do both too. You know, you could play the steak sandwich or the steak sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Easy. Uh, and th- this, of course, is primarily a podcast about Fletch, even though we tend to do non-Fletch movies, directors' filmographies. Right, right, right. Okay. Sometimes we cover. The careers of directors who have massive success early on are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce baby. And one time we covered Fletch, which means this is primarily a Fletch podcast. Right. Uh, that one time. And then we could now, just go back and do, um, is it Matola? Is that how you say his name? Greg Matola? 
David, what's that sound? Yeah, I hear that too. What is that? There's a sound yeah, off right. in the distance. It's like artificial piped in crowd noises. And I'm looking off and those bleachers are filled with cardboard standees oh, or okay, good. computer generated faces. All right, good. Oh my yes. God. And yet here is a very, very nervous baseball player stepping up to the mound. They seem uneasy, like they're being held at gunpoint to be forced to do their dangerous job. And with that, crack of the bat, no fans in the stands to catch it. It's the start of a new miniseries. Why, why, why do we do a baseball thing? Where, where did you come from? What does it have to do know. with anything? Because Griffin loves sports, right? Yeah, it's because I love sports. It's because I'm the number one sporto. Right. I guess that's the reason. It's just you're such a big uh, fan of America's pastime. Look, um, my 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 blood is. Uh, I don't know. I could please, come up with a good please, one for that. just 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 get get out of that one. This is just one of those bits where it ain't broke, so we don't need to fix it. You know, absolutely, right, definitely. But, yes. but you know, it is broke. The Record for home runs. Okay. Look out. You mean like Mark McGuire? Barry Bonds? Okay. Blake Check has caught up. Oh, is it Barry Bonds now? <laughs> Barry Bonds beat Mark McGuire, although, of course, you know, every Steroids. everyone in that era, everyone in that era was Steroids. chemically enhanced. But hey, that's just part of life. When did that happen? Recently? When, when did Barry Bonds break the home run record? Yeah. 2007 is when he did it. Guess um, I was busy yeah. that day. So this is a new miniseries on the films of Robert Zemeckis, winner of our blank check March Madness competition. And the miniseries is, of course, called Podcast Away. When it's that short a walk, you got to take it. You got to take it. And I'm sorry to anyone who wanted it to be insert in elaborate, awful sounding thing here, which they're always like the huge cast. Right. podcast <laughs> but uh when there's a movie with cast uh you just you kind of have to do that and i wanted to make something clear barry bonds broke the single season record in 2001 i thought 2007 sounded too late 2007 he broke the cumulative he, he has the most home runs of any player and that's why i don't remember it because there are a bunch of asterisks and i don't really recognize it as a true record broken of course yes to you it's still the babe right the, the babe ruth <laughs> Oh, my 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 top guy, the Bambino, yeah. the Sultan of SWAT, they called him. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And much like Babe Ruth calling his shot, I'm pointing to the bleachers and going, this is going to be our longest miniseries ever. <laughs> Wait, is it really? I think so. Uh, right? I think Burton might be long. I can't remember. It, it's up there, right? It's It's right up there. We always think Burton was longer than he was because it felt so long. I think Bobby is breaking last year's winner, Jonathan Demi's record. I feel like now the Blankies all congregate around making sure a long miniseries wins in March Madness. Bobby is going to be 19 episodes for us. Okay. And I think that's more, that's more than Demi, I believe. Is that including the witches? It's well, not including the no. witches, which, which you know, will come out when it comes out, which we don't really know more than that, right? It'll get here when it gets here. Yes. But our guest today, joining us, a long-requested guest on this show, and uh, especially once uh, Zemeckis started taking the bracket, uh, people went, well, you gotta have him on. He just did a 
40 minute video? How long was the Zemeckis video? I think it was 35 A tight 35. Yeah. A gentleman's 35 on the career of Robert Zemeckis. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Patrick H. Willems YouTube channel, (laughs) Infanti Cast, Can't Get Enough of Keanu, many more things. Patrick H. Willems. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan. Excited to be here. Of course. So early this year, I, I watched them all. I mm-hmm. took like two weeks and just burned through the whole filmography. And, uh, and I was happy to talk about all of them because like, I was really uh, gunning for, for Bobby Z in March Madness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was hoping it would be a, a him versus Bay showdown. Yeah. And um, every year I try to get people to vote Bay. And it still hasn't quite worked out. I don't think he'll ever win. He's too polarizing. Yeah. yeah. He's, the he's Bernie got his, of every year he's got his fans. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. like people always say that like, like I don't want, cause a lot of people watch the movies along with you guys. And they're always like, I mm-hmm. don't want to watch five transformers movies. And I'm like, but remember the prequels episodes? I want to listen to Griffin and David talk about five transformers movies and Patrick, lose their this minds. This has always been my exact argument. That's Griffin's for argument. Yeah. Because Zemeckis, not Zemeckis, I'm sorry. Bay, we've talked about this before. Bay is the only miniseries we had booked guests for, <laughs> scheduled, and then welched on it because people started getting really negative about it and we like pulled back. People recognized that we were hinting at it and were so negative we were like, let's reconvene, let's question this choice. And my whole thing was, it would be good to do Bay because those five Transformers movies are going to be the closest we can come to replicating the manic sort of cabin fever energy of the prequels. Right. Yeah. And my argument is we don't need to do that. And the bit I would love to do Michael Bay. My argument is more, it's not the train. I like the, I think the first three Transformers movies, there's tons to talk about. And yeah. pain and gain obviously is an extremely interesting A masterpiece. Everything post pain and gain is where I think we might start to suffer. He's the last night has a lot of banana stuff that we've talked about on this podcast, but like the sort of 13 hours, six undergrad, you know, that's where I'm starting to be like, man, is he kind of just like whatever? Like he seems to have lost his juice slightly. Hey, his next movie, like I, my theory is his next movie. It's like, it has number five. The the Robo Apocalypse. Oh, Uh I, th- I think it's like Black Five or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he just I, announced a new thing yeah. very recently. Okay. But he's right? counting yeah, down enough. to something. Wow. <laughs> and I don't know what it is, but that's my theory. And there's also my pitch for why people should vote Michael Bay next year. Anyway, but that said, I'm really happy that Zemeckis won. Uh, and I'm, I was happy to talk about anything because I think he's got a wild career. Uh, Bobby Z? Oh, yeah. He does, and he also has... Such distinct phases in an interesting way, you know, like he's a guy who very much goes through like, this is this period. This is this period. Um, and it's like one a decade. Yeah, it's so clean. Yes. 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 And now he's in his fourth decade, which is um, how to describe. Uh, it's his strangest decade yet, I would say. Right. His fourth. Yeah. Decade. Well, I feel like. Yes. Marwin was the end of one period. You had like the flight exactly. through Marwin. I suppose yeah. it's, it depends on, I suppose, right. What, what is the witches going to look like? You're right. You're We're right. about to enter the fifth feel, decade. It does feel like a swerve away from Marwin. Marwin right. probably. I have no yeah. idea what this fifth de- decade is going to be. And also now he's supposed to do fucking Pinocchio, right? He is. Although, you know, who knows? But yes, who knows yes, if anything's happening. Yes. Aren't there always like four Pinocchio movies in development? Like at mm-hmm. any given yes. time? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. This is the one, the Disney one, the the sort of uh, clear uh, uh, live action remake of Disney classic written by our friend uh, Chris White's. Yes, uh, that, and that Paul Bobby King. Z is now supposed to do. White's and King, I believe, are the credited right. people on this. Paul King yeah. was supposed to direct it originally. He uh, was, yes. But also, as you said, Patrick, 87 people were supposed to direct it originally. Right. It's bounced around. And then you've got like Del Toro working on his version, right? I don't know. There's always Pinocchios. Yeah. You're right. Wait, I forgot. Uh, Zemeckis ha- is also lined up to make The King, starring Dwayne Johnson and written by right. Randall Wallace. Right. Mm. Oh, which is about King Kame, uh, the, the, yes. the King of Hawaii, Kame, Kamehameha, right. I believe is how you say it. I'm not a Hawaiian historical yes. war epic. I mean, I don't know that I want Randall Wallace to be the guy writing that movie, but no. like that sounds kind of cool. I don't know. This feels like it would have been like a post Castaway movie if he didn't totally. go into the mocap phase. Hey, I also feel like I would be so happy. To see The Rock do anything that feels that personal and passionate. It would be nice to see him use his cachet as arguably the biggest movie star in the world to make something he deeply cares about. Uh, well, he's not going to do that, probably. Also, I don't think no. he's the biggest movie star My in the world anymore. I think, he, I think he blew that. That's why I said arguably, but yeah. also who the fuck knows now? You know, what, what is a movie star anymore? What are movies? These are the questions we're asking. Who framed Roger Rabbit? We'll get to that question later. But this week, we're asking the main question, do you want to hold my hand? And the answer is an emphatic yes, I want to hold your hand. Uh, yes, I want to hold your hand. What a good movie this is. I've never seen this movie before. Oh, it's a delight. Can I throw out a really hot take? Mm. It's charming. <laughs> I don't think that's a particularly hot take. I think that's pretty, pretty obvious. But yes, it's a very charming debut from a man in his 20s making a movie about Beatlemania in the late 70s, correct? Uh, we'll get into the context because this is obviously us uh, laying, laying out the track for our entire miniseries to follow. Um, and uh, this is one of those movies. I mean, you. this was sort of a big angle of your career spanning video on Bobby Z. Patrick is like, this is one of those movies where you see the seeds of so many things that are sowed in the rest of the career, but it's also a very assured first film. It's a first film where you're like, everything's there, not even in like a foggy way. No, it's a very confidently made movie. I mean, he was 26, I think like it's, it's crazy considering that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We all watched this really thorough special feature on the criterion uh, release that we'll talk about that explains the whole evolution. But I just want to throw out a thing that really fascinates me about Zemeckis and it's shared with our previous March Madness winner, Jonathan Demme. There are these two guys who are like massive American directors of the 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and they had like ultimate Oscar movies, like these movies that were massive runaway successes, right. totally minted movie stars, one across the board. They won the Oscar for directing at the pinnacle of both of their careers. Like not, not maybe not quality wise, but in terms of success, right? Like, And then- never receive a follow-up nomination. It is this fascinating thing to me where I feel like Zemeckis and Demi were continually thought of as like Oscar-y type directors. Even when they made weird things, even when they flopped, it was still like anytime there's a Zemeckis or a Demi movie coming out, 
Maybe it's in the Oscar conversation. And they literally, like, the only movie that Zemeckis has made post Forrest Gump that had really any actual Oscar traction was Castaway. And even that was viewed as sort of like, I feel like, despite being a huge box office success, something of an Oscar disappointment that it really only got, like, the Hanks as a major nom. Because I feel like that year people were like, oh, this might be a best picture play. This might be a best director play. Not to nom, to win. And then it was a huge hit, and then it just kind of got the Hanks nomination. His career is screenplay nomination for Back to the Future and uh, director win for Forrest Gump. And then uh, Flight also gets an actor nomination. But Zemeckis himself never gets a nomination, and he doesn't get screenplay nominations for his movies, director nominations, picture nominations. Uh, Did Polar Express get an animated feature? No. No. Okay. No. Huge, huge backlash against any mocap movies, especially back right, then. Right, right. The only image movers mocap movie that got nominated was Monster House. The best one. We will talk about this on the Castaway episode, but the reason that movie didn't get Best Picture was because DreamWorks was throwing everything at Gladiator. Um, but we oh, will talk about call. it. Can we have a volleyball as a guest? Absolutely. It's booked. It's on the. It's already on the spreadsheet. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Just in the separate Zoom call, we're going to have to figure <laughs> that out. We're going to have to create an email account for the for the volleyball to set up a Zoom account. It'll set it up itself, no problem. Yeah, of course. I'm yeah. so sorry. You're absolutely what are you right. What talking about? Incredibly rude of you to think that a volleyball can't set up at its own record. Robert Zemeckis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, much like one of my favorite directors, a, a, a good Chicago you know, boy, Right. Like sort of the the son of, you know, Southside, you know, Catholic immigrants. Yeah. Put some casing on that meat. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I think man is uh, Jewish immigrants. But, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Right. Sure. Like who yeah. like is just like watching TV and is like, I love these. Like, I want to make the movies like he's Spielberg. How do you describe Robert Zemeckis? Come on. Like, apart from the thing you just said about weird sort of Oscar peak in the valley. He's got this weird G whiz energy to him that I yes, feel like certainly right. comes yes. through when you see interviews with him, but also in his films, there's something bizarrely kind of like earnest and innocent about him in that sort of like, as you said, every one of his movies feels like you can hear him behind the camera going, God, I love movies. Right. <laughs> like he's just like, man, this is so much fun to make. Can you believe they let me do this? At least there's an exuberance for like the first half of his career. I do feel like he's now a little more kind of jaded and leery eyed of the modern industry. I mean, my my take on on Zemeckis is that like he has always loved toys. And before like the filmmaking toys showed up, I feel like he viewed like making the movies just simply like constructing a story as if like putting together an elaborate toy. They all have like, even before there were visual effects, there's like this clockwork precision to everything. There is the sort of like, even like this movie has the sort of like proto Forrest Gump magic trick of like inserting fictional characters in and around an actual like historical event. It's like the idea of playing with toys in some way or like creating some kind of magic trick on screen has always been like what has driven this guy. Uh, Yes, he's absolutely a guy who loves construction, not just in sort of like filmmaking technique, but especially in in story construction. So many of his movies have, if not some gimmick, some sort of gambit of this is how the story is being 
told and then trying to do that as as tightly and concisely as uh, with as much energy and emotion as possible. He is not technically a movie brat because he's sort of coming up right below the sort of 70s movie brat guys. Spielberg, he's like Diploma. five years behind. He's like right. half a generation behind those guys. He's like Spielberg's first protege, right? The, the first yes. guy that Spielberg sort of like, you know, uh, helps get uh, work in the industry. But much like Spielberg, right? Like basically constructed the blockbuster as we think of it, right? That like, you know, he, yes. he is one of the architects of the modern blockbuster that we all grew up with that basically kind of still echoes into now, even as franchises are sort of rewriting how that all works. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the amount of failures at the beginning of Zemeckis' career is so wild considering the insane run of like massive successes he had. Cause like he's involved in the one early Spielberg movie that people don't like. Yes, and yes, then his first the two bomb. movies flop. Right. I mean, 1941 is a bomb is actually slightly over. It actually made right. money, but it was not liked. As you say, this movie went nowhere. I want to hold your yeah. hand was again, well liked, but you know, didn't really go anywhere. Used cars maybe did a little better, kind of didn't go anywhere. But the thing is then he does romancing the stone and it's like, okay, you know, whatever you want, you just, you just, your movie made 10 times what it costs. Like, and that becomes the norm. We'll get to this, but back to the future was supposed to come right after used cars. They struggled for many years to get that movie made by all yeah. accounts. Romancing the stone was a thing where Spielberg was like, take Give this, this movie. You exactly. need to do a hit. Like it was like, just do one thing for hire, show them you can do it. The script is on rails. You have two big movie stars attached. Just do it. And that was the Hail Mary pass that saved his career because he was in this Gale zone. They were Bobby Z and Bobby G. They the were two sort of like the Wonder Kid team. And, uh, you know, they were going to be in it together forever. And Romancing the Stone was like the one sort of early for hire thing he did. And he very much was in a sort of like two strikes situation at that point yeah really kind of three strikes if you also chalk up 1941 to them which i feel like a lot of people did because it was like here's spielberg he's killing it he can't miss he's announcing that these two kids are his mentees and the movie is his first kind of face plant <laughs> in his career ever i think people were like why is he going in on these two bobs the two bobs but this movie that we are discussing today mm -hmm. is good. Not only is yeah. it good, it's very good. Really good. And I do think that anyone who saw this movie was like, well, this is just like an obviously talented person behind the camera. Like, just, you know, forget forget the Beatles stuff. Forget, like, this, this person just knows where to put the camera. That is an unusual skill. Like, you cannot just have yeah. that skill. Did you guys watch, you watched the short films on the Criterion, right? Yeah. I did not, but you. I I, well, okay. I watched one of them. I watched the one with the what's it the called? The elevator I one. Forgot the names. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, the lift, which is his first, uh, the, the earlier one. I don't know if it's his first film, but they're both USC films, and that's like a, another perfect example of you watch this like black and white nonsense sound student film, and you're just like this guy immediately knows where to put the camera and when to cut every single time. It is so perfectly constructed it is incredibly simple it's essentially just a guy feels terrorized by his elevator in his building right it's the bradbury building right 
Right. And it's like, is the elevator actually sentient and like sort of like fucking with him or is the guy just kind of going crazy? It's this dude who's sort of overworked in the rat race and he like feels like he's sort of being uh, uh, demonized by this elevator that he keeps on chasing that he can never fully catch until he has a heart attack and his body is sent down in the elevator. It's really simple. It's seven minutes. It's just like you watch this and you're like, yeah, this guy knows how to make a movie on a fundamental level. This guy knows how to make a movie. It's similar to what the myth of Spielberg was when he was like this like 22 year old who could walk on set and be like the camera should go here or whatever. And everyone was just like, this kid's a little genius. Like, who cares if he's young? Like he's, you know, he was going on to Columbo or whatever and and like doing shots that people would not usually attempt on TV, all that kind of shit. It's similar. It's a similar vibe. The second short is the one he does with Gale, right? Uh-huh. That's what what I thought was weird. Um, Gale on each movie has a credit, but like on on the lift, the, the first one is the lift, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the elevator one. Gale is one of like eight production assistants, right? And then on the second one, Gale is only credited for like the credits design. Weird. So he's there and they're friends, yeah. but he's not even. Like, he didn't co-write them. He doesn't seem like one of, like, the primary uh, crew members on it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't recognize any other names. Field of Honor is the second one. That's their sort of anti-war one, what Spielberg calls their anarchist cinema one. But uh, Spielberg takes Sugarland Express to USC. It's his first theatrical film as a director. He's doing the rounds, showing it at film schools. And uh, Zemeckis and Gale run up to him afterwards and hand him this short film. And he watches it and goes, oh, game recognized game. I can see this guy's sort of like me, you know, five years ago. Uh, and and so he like latches on to these guys and uh, brings them around. The movie brats uh, just starts really trying to show them the ropes. It's this thing again. He talks about USC. It's the early 70s. Everyone there is like. I love the modern reinvention of cinema that is happening now. Like I love the French new wave. Like I love like how movies are changing. Like, you know, people are, have a more arty revolutionary, like a lot of students feel that way. And he and Bob Gale are more the types who are like, we love television, Hollywood movies. We love James Bond. We like Disney. We like Clint Eastwood. Like we want to make blockbusters. We want to make like fun movies and that's kind of the Spielberg thing too right Spielberg doesn't go to film school but it's that similar kind of just like pop culture brain that that like I assume is what he sees in them right like I think Spielberg said he loved that their short film had the score to the great escape the Elmer Bernstein score on it yeah and like he's you know I just that's just that kind of like you know revival house dork you know, mindset that Spielberg had. Right. But it also speaks to just sort of like, uh, uh, how lucky they were that this encounter happened after Sugarland Express. Sure. Right. Because at a certain point, Spielberg's going to be too, right. A hundred percent. Right. Yes. Right. They're in the fold at the last moment that you can have a somewhat level relationship with Steven Spielberg. (laughs) That's what's wild. Like he was their mentor and he was like, what, three years older than them. He must have been like at the most five years older or something like that. I looked it up. It's a five year difference. Yeah. There okay. That's what was it really interesting in that conversation because they're talking about the idea of like mentorship and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And they're saying, yeah, uh, really the way we did like mentorship was just we like just hung out a lot and talked about movies and went to restaurants. And then my favorite part uh, went skeet shooting with John Milius. 
Yes. Lots of skeet shooting. I think John Milius, who's like, was like, was the sort of one, the rest of the movie brats were like, God, he's so macho. Like this guy's (laughs) crazy. Like we all just like to sit around and not talk to women. Like this guy is like the opposite of that. John Milius is like the Ryan Atwood who would like, like beat up the bullies for them Mm -hmm. while they're just like cowering in the corner. I was going to say, he's like the Mickey Rourke to their diner. Like, right. the rest of them are Paul Reiser arguing nuance. <laughs> uh, but but yes, they. it's weird. Spielberg keeps mentioning how much Milius kind of equally mentored them. Obviously, the Spielberg mentorship uh, helped their career more, but like that they were very much a unit and that he was also bringing them around the other brats. Um, and, and did I miss here, did he say that 1941 they were originally writing for Milius? Milius has a story credit on 1941. I don't know if he was initially going to direct or if he was just also working, like helping them work, like break the story. I don't, I don't, I'm sure I could look that, this up. I, I um, can't tell if they were just, the three of them were working on it together with no clear intention or if they were working on it for him to direct, but it very much wasn't being created for Spielberg originally. Spielberg was mentoring these guys. Uh, then he has Jaws, and then he reads their script, and he goes, oh, this is great. I would love to do this. So he sort of takes over it. Uh, And it's a big move that you're like Spielberg post-Jaws is putting his chips in on this. This movie is similar, as Spielberg, I believe, points out. This is all this conversation we're referencing. This is on the Criterion release of this movie, which is very good. 1941 is about Americans losing their minds out of World mm-hmm. War II paranoia, right? Like this movie is about Americans losing their minds through Beetleman. Like they're both about yeah. these kind of like hysterical events, like very <laughs> focused hysterical events in American, like modern American history. Yeah. With this sort of like wind up toy energy, just this like constant kinetic comedic sort of uh, chaos. And they, they talk a lot about how they view this as kind of like a spiritual cousin to American graffiti. Yes, it's sure. Very, very sort of of a piece with American Graffiti. It right. is, and it's not as pointedly dark as American Graffiti, but no. it does kind of pepper in like the cops, you know, setting up barricades. Like you know, you you do have the sense of like, oh, this is an innocent time getting ready to curdle, much like American Graffiti. Yes, right, and and that it's sort of the one night, the ensemble cast, the main group all splitting up and meeting other people, going on their own adventures. That it's very much about the sense of what's going to happen to these characters afterwards, what's going to happen to America afterwards. That sort of ominous feeling. But the big difference. It's a bunch of Jersey kids. <laughs> it's a, a bunch of Jersey point, girls <laughs> making Kevin Smith proud. Yeah, but primarily, I think that's a big thing. Like you, you don't see very many movies, especially leads, yeah. of this era, right? You have so many films in the sort of like post-America graffiti wake. Things like Diner, where it's like I'm making a movie about what me and my friends were like in high school, right? Like a director's early get the foot in the door movie is largely autobiographical. And this is a work of imagination for Gale and Zemeckis. They are not incredibly personal filmmakers, and they are making a film about four women that they have created reacting to this situation. And it is immediately startling to just like watch this type of film and go, you never see these types of movies with the women centered uh, you know, without exception, you know? Yes. I right. just, it's just Bobby DeChico's character. I mean, Ben is mentioning Jersey types, uh, you <laughs> sure. know, the, the, you know, I just got to shout him out. Yeah. There are the boys Jersey in the group, boy. but they're, 
they're, yeah, secondary, they're secondary. And yes. and most of those sort of driving around looking to have fun on a Saturday night movies of this era, especially the ones that are period pieces, the women are largely goals. You know, mm-hmm. they are, I got to speak to this lady yeah. at the end of the night. I got to get to this party to see her. And it, it is unusual to see that. But um, yes, they're working on 1941. Uh, Spielberg's in the post-Jaws zone. They're talking with Spielberg. They sort of talk through this idea. They're talking about this memory of that moment in time. Uh, and I guess, you know, they, they later add the idea of this fictional band to it. Um but the idea of just sort of like, uh, right, this this moment in American pop culture. And Spielberg goes like, that sounds like it could probably be a movie. And they immediately just go to work trying to write this thing. Uh, they uh, pitch it to Warner Brothers. I assume probably just because they have the heat of people knowing that Spielberg has sort of anointed them and that 1941 is going to be a film at some point. And Warner Brothers uh, acquires it, but knows that... Uh, the movie only is going to work if you're able to license all of this uh, music because in the criterion, they say license all the music, but obviously all the songs, the Beatles songs were written for this movie. This is a weird bit. I'm not doing a bit. It's like, but it's a fictional band. The songs don't exist. What is this bit? This is a terrible bit. I hate this bit. I I, know I'm confused. What, What do you think I'm doing? I don't. The Beatles are not a fictional band. Obviously, they're a real band. What is this bit? This is the worst bit of all time. This is hands down the worst bit of all. No, time. they made a movie about this bit, and it was great. <laughs> you know what? That's what I should have been saying the entire time I was watching yesterday. This is the worst bit. What is this bit? <laughs> That's what all the characters should say. Like, what are you fucking talking about? This bit sucks. Of course, the Beatles exist. Man, I wish I. I wish I could smoke something phallic or drink a carbonated beverage to calm down from this, but God, I can't think of anything that exists would help take the edge what off if, right now. What if during yesterday he had gone to see, I want to hold your hand in a revival house. And that's the only way people know the Beatles. They're like, yeah, the fictional band from I want to hold your hand. Sure. It's pretty niche. Yeah. They're like du jour. <laughs> Okay, so wait, question. Um, what about something like Purple Rain, where Prince plays a guy who's not named Prince? Right, that would count, and then people would go, it's weird that this actor just came out of nowhere and was so good at playing a musician. <laughs> God, yeah. this bit annoys me in every version. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yes, Warner Brothers licenses successfully in 1978 licenses the Beatles music. I don't know how they did that, but they did I don't know do how it. they did either. Wait, can we talk about this? Because I'm I've always been so fascinated by like the like how difficult it apparently is to license Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. Like I was looking uh this up last night. Uh, do you remember in like 2012 when uh an episode of Mad Men uses Tomorrow Never Knows? They spent a fortune on that. Yes. They qu- spent a quarter of a million dollars for yeah. one song. And they said they'd been trying for years and kept getting turned down. It is an incredible moment in Mad Men because it's Don listening to that song and turning it off and being like, whatever. Like, it's it is the it is the future passing him by. Like, it is him realizing, right. like, I don't know what's happening anymore in culture. But like the number of times that a Beatles song appears in a movie or TV show, I feel like in the past 20 years, you could count on like one hand. Social Network at the very end. And yes. before that, uh, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
I mean, that's the thing. Well, no, Tristan yeah. Shout isn't really a isn't really a Beatles song though. But it's, it it's is the their cover now. that's used. Yeah, it's their sure, recording, fair. right? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no. Instead, I think of like across the universe or I am Sam things that do covers like that are like, right. we'll do the songs, but we'll have our own interpretation and all that, you know, yesterday I am Sam across yeah, the universe. Obviously. All three were movies where they were like, we're negotiating a bigger deal. Like this is a movie where the Beatles are part of the marketing campaign front and center. Like even I am Sam, where it isn't part of the actual plot of the movie. No, it, it is it, part it, of the plot of the movie. The He's posters. obsessed with the Beatles. Well, you know what I'm saying? But you know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Like well. the the hook, the one line on yesterday and uh, fucking across the universe is Beatles songs. I am Sam sure. has a first one line. And then the second line is also he's obsessed with the Beatles. But right. the poster was like featuring 17 songs from the Beatles. Like the soundtrack was such a first and foremost element on that movie. It, it feels like those are the cases where it's like the entire movie is pitched to the remaining Beatles trust and they have to like come up with some deal and the movie only gets greenlit based on that. And even right. then, it's almost always using alternate versions and covers. So my question is, in 1978, they were able to license like, like the entire soundtrack is just yeah. songs. And so when yes. did things change? Well, John Lennon dies. And I think Yoko Ono That's is true. much more protective of his legacy. And so she is incredibly reticent. Just to be clear, Griffin, for I Am Sam, they, that's covers because they couldn't get the Beatles to license it. You can do covers like that. You don't right. need anything from the Beatles if you do a cover. And I Am Sam was specifically, they were like, we're going to negotiate with the Beatles. We'll, and the Beatles said no, or whoever, you know, oh, wow. whoever's I in didn't charge. realize that. And so yeah. that that's why it's covers. I don't know about across the universe. I, I no, I remember I, Yoko. One, yeah. Yoko was involved with that. I mean, the the widows were involved with that yesterday. Right. That's more. That's more of a direct tribute. Right. But both of those are uh, cover movies too, and even things like yes. uh, yeah. uh, Hey Jude in Rural Tannenbaum's is pointedly a cover. Like all these mm. things where directors wanted to use the original songs and they couldn't. It costs a fortune, and, and they they just dismiss most requests out of hand i think what's wild to me yep. is not that they were able to get 17 beatles songs in 1978 uh which you know is kind of stunning but you're like might have slipped through the cracks might have right been right before the sort of hammer came down what, yeah what's more surprising to me is that their rights were this locked down that this movie hasn't had any issues getting released on home video that having been said mm -hmm. not streaming anywhere that's the thing. I think it is tough because that's, I assume that's one of the reasons it's not streaming. I think the rights to it are sort of complicated. And it wasn't on DVD for a, a long time. And when it did come out on DVD, the cover is like silhouettes of the four Beatles. And it says featuring 17 original songs from the Beatles in almost bigger font than the title of the movie itself. And it was gonna, this movie was going to be called Beatlemania, right? And the, yeah. eventually they were like, let's not even put Beatles in the title because we'll get in trouble. Then they switched it to Beatles 4, number 4, hyphen ever. Terrible wow. title. Which, a bad name. So they uh, set this film up at Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers negotiates for all the song rights because they know there's no movie without that. But at that point, the movie is expensive. And also, in a post-America graffiti landscape, after George Lucas had such a nightmare getting that movie off the ground and they want to punt it to TV... Now, this type of movie is seen as valuable. Like, this could be a big hit. So Warner Brothers starts sure. to feel like we might have something hot here. So they go, well, we can't let Zemeckis direct this. And they want Jonathan Demme to direct it. Yes, they do. 
a few steps up on the ladder, I guess, at that point, right? He's he's young in his career, but I guess he's made a few movies. So, yeah. like, you know, he's it's around when he's making, like, handle, you know, C, uh, Citizens Band, and he's about to do Last Embrace. A thing I was thinking about is I, uh, I didn't have time to listen to the entire commentary track, but I watched, like, 20 minutes of it. And a thing that Zemeckis and Gale mentioned in it is that they were, like, our big comedic influences are, like... Uh, Frank Capra and uh, like Three Stooges and Marx Brothers and our approaches yeah. have everyone talk 20% faster than they would in <laughs> yes. real life, which uh, is very clear in this movie. Uh, that's how everyone talks. And I feel like Demi would have a, even for a movie that's structured this tightly, would not mm-hmm. have quite the manic pace of it. No, definitely not. And I also I feel like they were writing movies that in a way only Zemeckis knew how to direct as evidenced by the fact that like Spielberg read 1941 and was like, oh, fuck, this seems like so much fun to do. And then he did not have the right touch to pull it off. It's a very fine line of what he pulls off. And and it's it is that kinetic energy. It's everyone constantly being in motion. You know, I mean, I feel like that's such a defining Zemeckis thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Spielberg is not really a great comedy director. Like his good, funny yeah. movies, like Catch Me If You Can or whatever, the those terminal. are like light dramas. <laughs> yeah, the terminal. Um Jaws like you know, those fun. are well, he has very funny stuff. Like Jaws has all kinds of big laughs in it. Jaws is a goddamn yeah. pleasure to watch. Like, like the sharky right, like, people. Yeah. Uh, no. no. You know, like, you know, like Robert Shaw's, funny. you know, nails on the chalkboard, right? Like, you know, when you're gonna need a bigger mm-hmm. boat bubble. But like he's not he never made like an incredible comedy comedy. No, it's it's certainly I, I mean, uh, he he might be uh, even marginally better at sex scenes than he is at comedy. That's not true. <laughs> sex <laughs> scenes is the true. thing he's worst at. Yeah. Are the Indiana Jones movies like his funniest movies? Yes, absolutely. I was about to say the exact same thing. Last Crusade is his most successful comedy. Yeah. Right. And that's where that's where he can do comedy, where it's like old 30s, uh, you know, Layered. genre. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Layered onto something else. I will say about like Zemeckis and like approaching this and also like 1941, mm-hmm. uh, it's been like maybe like five. I've only seen 1941 once and it was like five or six years ago. Uh, so it's not super fresh in my mind, but I feel like part and I like enjoyed it, even though it's not it doesn't. F- entirely work but I, I feel like what that's missing like 1941 doesn't really have characters the way that like uh, or like it doesn't have human beings in it the yes. way that i want to hold your hand has human beings like a, a key thing in like the best zemeckis movies is like and I, I know i'm just rehashing points i made in that video but i uh, but it's like they have characters with very like clearly defined goals that they really, yes. really believe in. And it's about like their like really intense process of like trying to reach that goal. And 1941 is like also has this like very intricate construction with like a million mm. moving pieces. But I feel like there's no really like humanity in it the way that like I want to hold your hand has humans who have like human like desires and goals. Absolutely. And I, I also feel like it's it's fascinating that the two scripts happen almost simultaneously, right? I mean, it's like 1941 into this, and then this comes out before 1941. But um, they talk about in that long, the special feature conversation, how densely they sort of plotted and constructed this movie with their 
note cards and uh, the color coding system to be able to visualize how the threads were interweaving and how much balance and screen time each character got. And the fun fact that the four girls have their names have the same initials as John Paul George and Ringo. Pretty clever. Which Spielberg never realized. Uh, but they they are very much like once they said that, I was like, right, they're kind of the ultimate uh, note card storytellers. Like they do have that. None of this is coincidental. These guys don't feel like they're running on a sort of loose improvisational bent. You can tell that everything is very, very tightly constructed in this sort of clockwork way. Which that's that's the modern blockbuster. That's what we're talking, right? right. Like that's the Spielberg thing too, right? Yeah. Where like the the hit on it is this feels too clean. But I mean it's 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 pure serotonin. Not to talk greasy, but I've been watching uh, the Russo Brothers Film School, which is very bizarre. Their YouTube series where they keep on sort of talking about how they've like figured out the perfect storytelling algorithm. And they believe that every screenplay that they do and especially the stuff that they're now producing through their Agbo film company or whatever it's called. Uh, has to like work through this like this has to happen on this page you have to track this this character has to have this and this and that like and it, it I, I feel like the Russos have done some stuff I've liked a lot they've done some stuff I've liked less but in both cases I do feel that sort of studiedness with them where they're very like sort of unwavering and like this is the page 15 moment. You need to have the page 15 moment. And on page 15, these three things happen. And that's a specific example that they talk about that I'm throwing out. And and the joy of Zemeckis and Gale is, as you're saying, Patrick, they make it still feel organic and human and character driven as much as it is clearly a very tightly sort of constructed automaton. It, it, it is so behavioral and every character has such a personally specific uh, sort of uh, charming, interesting uh, internal struggles going on that it doesn't feel that forced. Just out of curiosity, like I don't know about this Russo Brothers Film School. Do they have a YouTube channel? Yeah, they have a, a YouTube channel now. So there's pizza involved, right, Griffin? Um, it, it's they have a guest on and they talk about a movie uh, and they break but isn't down there pizza. Yes, they call it Pizza Film School. It has this Thank insane okay. rap song talking about the Russo brothers being the two greatest filmmakers of all time. Truly, that's the Wait, level of gaslighting probably they throw. No, not at all. And uh, like this Adult Swim style animation of them like partying and the vomiting themselves out of their mouth and whatever. And they, it's called Pizza <laughs> Film School. And it, and only because at the very beginning they go, so we like to eat pizza while we talk about movies. <laughs> what pizza are you all eating today? And then, like, Joe will show what pizza he's eating. Their guests will show the pizza, which is often just Marcus and McFeely. Most episodes, it's Marcus <laughs> and McFeely. And then every sure. episode, Anthony very sheepishly says, I actually ate my pizza before we started recording, uh, but I'll tell you what I did eat. <laughs> every Anthony's episode, nice he fucks one. it up and he doesn't eat pizza on screen. I agree that he seems like the nice one. I like yeah. him. But the show is called Pizza Film School. Eat a fucking slice on camera, Anthony, or retitle it. So this is all over Zoom? Uh, this is all, yeah, over Zoom. all over Zoom. Right. And it's mostly them with Marcus and McFeely. And then a couple times they've had actors from movies on. And the actors talk about their experiences working on the films. And then Joe and Anthony goes, but the filmmakers must have been doing this for this reason because this is how stories work. And then like Josh Brolin will go like, no, the Coen brothers don't really think that way. 
uh, it's very fascinating. I recommend that people watch it. They are contemporary. The, the, right, the contemporary blockbuster, which I have a lot of problems right. with, which is what you're talking about. The, the only thing I'll say about the Russo brothers is because I've been binging community, partly on I'm your advice, you on Griffin. Yeah. yeah. Like I sort of rediscovered, I was like, Jesus, right. These guys were kind of doing something perfectly like, you know, like that. You know, I forgot that that how much of a hand they had, especially in the early seasons. I, I like community. a yeah. lot of what they've done. A lot. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying they very openly talk about every movie we produce is going to have this exact structure. And I, I think like I remember them in an interview saying their goal explicitly with Civil War was to make a movie that cinema sins couldn't criticize. They were like, we ran through and made sure that everything was airtight and that every thread was like this and that. And it's like, why put the energy into that? Whereas Back to the Future is a perfect example of a movie where you can pluck out 87 things that don't make sense, but no one. Back to the Future makes no sense at all. Yeah. You answer the right questions. You ignore the wrong questions. And I feel like, uh, whatchamacallit, this movie is just them testing this out in a very low stakes way. You don't have a sci-fi premise, you know? You don't have mortal dangers for the character. The objectives are very clear. You have four girls who start out the movie together, who will end it vaguely together, and along the way, they all have the same driving force, which is, get to the Beatles. And I mean, even though there is the main four girls, there are, like... They do. There are other characters. There's the other. There's yeah. the two boys who tag along, and then right. uh, we'll get to Eddie Deason, obviously. But I, uh, but the two boys also have their own goals, and everyone, yes. like, like everyone has that clear journey over the course of it. So I'm not trying to derail this because I know we haven't really started talking about the plot of this movie. But can we talk about Bob Gale? Because I'm so fascinated by Bob Gale, and my favorite era of Zemeckis' career is the Bob Gale era. Yes, he, he he is the best collaborator. He's he's so much the collaborator. When people talk about this time, it's like they were the Bobs. They were a team. They were clearly a unit. And then it is very bizarre. They seem to get along very well. They do stuff together all the time. But he seems to be one of these guys who just post Back to the Future was like, my job is being the keeper of the Back to the Future flame. And he has done some stuff after that, but it's primarily been managing the Back to the Future legacy and all the additional outputs. Do you know the last thing I remember that Bob Gale did? He did a Spider-Man run, right? That was it. Well, in 2008, when they did the Amazing Spider-Man relaunch, where they had like the brand new day era, where they had like the writer's room of like, like Dan Slott. When it was basically weekly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Gale, who I hadn't heard about in years, suddenly is like one of the writer's room guys on the Spider-Man comic. And then he was there for like a year and a half and then left. And yeah. I have no idea what he's been up to, but it's not like he and Zemeckis had a falling out. Like they're absolutely not like buddies they seem to be on, in this on incredible terms. They do shit together all the fucking time. Just not projects. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They seem to be on great terms, but like when you're watching that conversation on the DVD, which is Spielberg, mm-hmm. Gale and Zemeckis, and I've interviewed Zemeckis. He seems fairly ornery now. I will say like hmm. about the state of the film industry. It's, it does like, they're all in the past. Like they're having these wonderful nostalgic conversations about like the beginning of their right? you know, like, but maybe there's yeah. just some point at which Gail is like, eh, I'm not that interested in whatever, you know, whatever project you're eyeing next. And then it just kind of like naturally drifts apart. 
It's weird. Like, I feel like he did some, like, theme park movies. He directed a film that my father actually produced. Is that Route 66? Uh, in, in, Interstate, Interstate 60? 60? Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which, uh, which I, I right, think is... Peter an, Newman. It's an okay movie. It's very bizarre. It was kind of like, oh, this is Bob Gale's great unmade screenplay. And I feel like there were a couple of those post Back to the Future where it was like, oh, do you know Gale has these scripts that he wrote on his own that never got made? He's maybe not a natural director. And the film is very bizarre tonally because it's half got this sort of manic early Gale Zemeckis comedic energy and is half weirdly dark and sexual in a way that kind of bumps with that cartoonishness. The only thing I want to say about Bob Gale is that he seems like the nicest man in the world in all these conversations, Mm -hmm. these interviews, these panels. Like he seems like a real kind of aw shucks guy. He's from, I believe he's like a Jewish guy from Missouri, from like a college town in Missouri. Like Mm -hmm. he just seems like the friendliest fella. And maybe there's just got to be some point where he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm doing all right. And like, I don't need to keep mixing it up with all his Hollywood bullshit. You know, like maybe there's, he just kind of like soft retired. Cause like you said, he does sort of manage the back to the future, whatever. Uh, Yeah. Look, I'll I'll say two things. One, Back to the Future residuals are certainly enough to live off of for the rest of your life. Oh, is right? that are those movies popular? Do they do okay? Very. They did okay? okay. Second thing is, there's always Back to the Future shit going on. Like it, yeah. it, from the moment pretty much the first movie came out, you've had a near constant stream of different forms of merchandise and animated series and theme park rides. There's the Broadway musical that's been in the works for a long time that was supposed to, I think, open in London or just did open in London right before coronavirus. There are comic books, like all these fucking things, and not to mention conventions and the constant retrospectives. And every five years, there's another round of anniversary shit. And he very much seems to be the guy who either approves of everything or leads everything. Like uh, when I worked on draft day, there's a guy who's part of Reitman's company, Joe Magic, who's a great producer in his own right. But he's also like, I'm the guy who deals with all the Ghostbusters shit. <laughs> like if it's not a movie, if it's something with Ghostbusters, I'm the guy who like has the red stamp and does that. And I think Gail does a lot of that. And he also like wills a lot of that stuff into existence uh, on his own. But it is also interesting that like Trespass and like Interstate 60, there's sort of this bounty of like, unmade Gail Zemeckis scripts and also unmade Gail scripts that never really get talked about. I know he wrote a Doctor Strange script. I mean, he's a nerd. He likes comic books. Look, I love the man. Like, uh, I know, obviously, they wrote the um, Tales from the Crypt script that eventually got turned into Bordello Blood, right? Like, that was, like, something they wrote back in their, you know, partnership days. I just want to say the final thing, and then we can get into the movie itself now that we sort of set up how the movie came into existence. Uh, they're in this sort of weird zone at Warner Brothers because uh, they want Demi to do it. They don't trust Zemeckis to do it. The movie seems a little bit stuck at a standstill. Uh, Spielberg slips the script to Universal, says, take a look at this. They go, this is great. Spielberg says, I really think this guy's a director. I think this is a major filmmaker. This is the start of a career. You want to get in early on this guy. I think he can direct it. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Sid Sheinberg says, really? And he goes, I trust him so thoroughly that if a weekend of filming, it doesn't work out, I'll take over as director. So to Universal, they were like, look, either it works or we get a free Spielberg movie. Who gives a shit? (laughs) Now, Spielberg was very aware of the fact that uh, DGA and PGA rules. A producer is not able to take over a film as a director. 
but he promised them that, which got him through the door. Uh, and Warner Brothers still felt they had ownership of the movie. And Spielberg's agent just called up the head of Warner Brothers and said, come on, man, you're not going to let this guy direct the movie. This could be the start of his career. Can you give the guy a break? And he went, yeah, sure. Another classic example of people in the entertainment industry doing things out of the goodness of their heart. It happens all the time. Mm. Uh, It's just very weird that that actually happened. I'm being sarcastic here, but it's weird. it's yeah. it's the height of Spielberg's power. I mean, it's not the height right. because he reaches greater heights, but it, it's the it's an example of how powerful he was even then. Like that, everyone wants yeah. to owe Spielberg a favor, so exactly. they're willing to exactly. agree to things that make no sense in the idea that someday they will be repaid with a Spielberg film. So I the mean, film is off to the races now. Right, Universal takes this movie on, and it you know it doesn't do very well. So, but like, but nonetheless, no. it was a but they like get you say, everyone was like, yeah, and and right, and everyone's everyone's on good terms with everyone or what, you know what I mean? That that's the sort of like, yeah. like you say, everyone owes each other a favor. And once again, this was a thing that studios used to think about, which is like, I don't know if this movie is going to be successful, but it's worth the investment of maybe trying to make this filmmaker a, a member of our roster. This might be a good long-term investment. Uh, I feel like you rarely see that happening outside of maybe like a, the horror scene in Blumhouse and things like that. But anyway, right. Yeah, well, you know what, guys? Ben's changed his <laughs> Zoom background to the boycott the Beatles. Sign. Yeah. Wait, Ben, do you not Nailed like the it. Beatles? Ben, fuck Boy, you. God, you don't Beatles. like the Beatles? Ah, oh, God damn it. I'm quitting this podcast if you don't like the Beatles. Because they're the best. Because they're the fucking best. And not only do I like How the Beatles, you know but... All right, shut up. Is that watching this movie, I literally bought the Beatles anthology on DVD while I was watching this movie because wow. I, immediately I was like, man, I got to watch the Beatles anthology again, which I've seen like twice in my life, right? The big anthology thing that's like eight discs. You know, everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? I, yeah, I do yes. not. No. Wait, on it's, vinyl? It's a great... No, no, no. No, it's, it was it's like a, a documentary. TV miniseries. Oh, yes. oh, okay. Wait, yes. I know what you're talking about. The vinyl, they, they released albums that went with it. It's like a big, but like, it is the definitive Beatles documentary. It is so good. I recommend it to anyone. It's one of the greatest, like, uh, just documentaries about the 60s in general. And it's unavailable. Like, you can't stream it. Oh, again, unsurprisingly, because the Beatles yeah. uh, music is so complicated. So I bought it on, like, some used DVD. That's how much I love the Beatles and how good this movie is that it had me immediately, like, in my Beatles nostalgia feelings, whatever. Can I also say, I, I love Beatles movies. Like, I, I yeah, feel like, they're good. you know, I'm more of a movie guy than I am a music guy. But for me as a kid, the Beatles movies were the things I really latched onto. And it's like, they made mm. these three theatrical films that are very distinct and very different and use the Beatles in different ways, in different sort of styles. And they fucking slap. The thing about the Beatles, though, is it's your parents' music. Shut the fuck up. I'm going to kill you, Ben. I'm going to come over. Where are you? Are you in your apartment? Yes. <laughs> You're close. I'm going to walk over there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I resisted when I was a kid for that very reason, because I was like, I don't yeah. care about the music that my parents like. And then yeah. I think I was in high school and I like I was like, it's, it's undeniable. It I, I gave in. That's the thing. I fought it for so long. And eventually yeah. it's just you hear Revolver, the White Album, like yeah, Abbey man. Road. You just can't deny these songs are amazing. 
talking about how many good Beatles songs there are, and it's one of those things where, like, we're of a generation where you take Beatles as a given, right? Like, we just grew up with, like, the understanding where it's just like, oh, yeah, everyone just tells you the Beatles are the best band of all time. And in the same way that, like, it's not until you maybe as an adult or at least, uh, you know, an upper age adolescent, after hearing these songs play in the background of your entire life, sit down and, like, really listen to an album from beginning to end that you really register, like, wow, this is like pretty insane that they made full albums like this and multiple full albums like this and had this many songs that are this iconic. To the same degree, it is very hard to like sit down and process the extent of Beatlemania. Just the idea that it was like, here's this band that has taken over the rest of the world and they're coming. Like, here's a date, they're going to be on TV, and America is like bracing itself for the fact that society is going to catch on fire. Well, but but it's 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 but it's a specific part of society, which I think is part of the thing, right? Where these adults are like, what is going on with all of you? Like, what are you guys like? What are you all so excited about? My mother was the perfect age, which is one reason I love the Beatles for sure, because my mom was a Beatle maniac. Same with my parents. My dad, my dad went to the Shea Stadium concert. That was their first American concert. My mom, I believe, was at the Candlestick Park, but the same tour, their final tour where they were like, fuck this. We can't even hear ourselves, you know. Um, But uh, my mom was 12 years old. She like specifically recalls like being shown the first LP, like maybe the first single, like at the record mm-hmm. store and being like, look at their hair. Like had never seen that haircut, like had never yeah. seen boys with long hair in her entire life. Like it's so hard for us to think about that. Like, you know, like Wait, looking at also, the Beatles. Yeah. That was like, long hair. Yeah, they're right. Yeah, they're, exactly. They're, 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 oh, those look like nice boys. And at the time it was like, have these boys never cut their hair? Like, what is this? What's going on with them? Like, this is outrageous. Like, you know, how could they look this way? And, and like, just, it's just this crazy, like sexual awakening for an entire generation that is not quite given that description because it's still the early sixties, but like just the, it's so crazy. It'll, I mean, I know obviously people go see, you know, that it's true for every generation that you go see musical acts and you scream, right. You know, freak out like, you know, but like this, there's nothing like that. Like this is sort of the original. I mean, I know that the Elvis had happened before, but like th- this is just so unique and strange. This is sort of the first generation that really has a youth culture where there's not just you're a kid and then you're pushed into the adult world of serious concerns and the workforce where there's actually like culture directed at youths who are driving like industries. And that's also driven a lot by a sense of counterculture and a sense of sexuality. All things that scare the old guard. Elvis was very openly, he was like a sexual creature. So I think that was obviously part of what was so shocking about him, right? He was so, he was so unexpectedly, you know, physical. Yes. They didn't and lie. The hips, the hips. And like, you know, and right. But like, he's the beginning of like teen counterculture as just like jailhouse rock, like movies like that, that are being marketed to these, you know, kids in a way that no one had ever thought about before. That's what's also funny about this. Like Elvis was like sexual. And also he's like start like in jailhouse rock. He kills a guy at the beginning and then is imprisoned. Yeah. He's he seems like a bad influence. And the Beatles are just nice boys who stand in one place and play guitars. They're goofballs. And they're cute. They're goofy. They do. They tell jokes like John really loved, especially like, you know, John had grown up with that sort of 40s, 50s, like sort of dour British comedy that he really like that sort of channels like 
They're nice. And also, but also they're kind of collectible. You pick a favorite, like, you know, all their like, you know, likes and dislikes and all that. Like, it's the beginning of that whole template. There was this perfect storm thing for them, too. I mean, like Elvis was obviously like a very kind of constructed, cultivated image. You know, I'm not saying that he was a phony, but like Colonel Tom Parker very much. It was like they built a thing around him. And even like the idea that he plays like a murderer in his movies, they were trying to build up this sort of like mythos of the bad boy thing. Where did this guy come from? What side of the tracks is he on? And the Beatles, like especially at this point in time, are they're they're so seemingly guileless. Like there's something to the fact that there are people like fainting around them and they're asked questions and they give these like glib sort of half joke answers and then like do like full body laughs and shake their hair and stuff. Like the juxtaposition between the chaos around them and how much they aren't playing into it. And you also talk about like Elvis set the stage for this kind of thing. But I think A, because at this point, you have like parents and adults who have seen the impact that Elvis had on culture. They're even more freaked out about the Beatles hitting and B they're four Beatles and C they're not even American. Like it's a thing that comes up in this movie that you have that little strain of xenophobia, especially with the teenage boys where they're just like these fucking Brits want to come here yeah. And make our and girls want to sleep with yes. them. Yeah. But like, and, and all the boy, well, especially the Bobby DeChico character, right? Like he's like a, he's an elvis kind of guy. He's a sort of a greaser. He's got the hair he's up. A he's got, you know, like he's, he's like, wait, I've cultivated this whole image. Are you telling me this isn't the thing anymore? It's also great that there's the two layer thing of like the parents saying like, we've barely gotten over Elvis. We can't have this happen again. Right. And then that character is like, Hey, I thought we all liked Elvis. Can we stay in Elvis? <laughs> right, well, what also is right. funny about that guy is, is he, he keeps talking about like, he likes like Frankie Valley and the four seasons. Yes. Which, and like this kind of divide, it's like kind of like an early version of like the like rock versus disco thing mm-hmm. or like the boy bands versus new metal thing. And it's funny because like the Beatles are playing rock music that would seem like more aggressive, like than the four seasons, which is yes. like doo up. Right. But that's what he knows. And and doo-wop was based in these weird, like, you know, these greaser, like, sort of, like, street kids, like, energy, even if they weren't trying to seem dangerous. Whereas with the Beatles, especially at this point, you're just like, are, are, do these guys take anything seriously? <laughs> you know? Um, Irreverent. So, so th- yes. So the four characters we start off with in this film... Uh, much like American Graffiti, we start with them all together, spread out, and their web extends to other characters. But you have uh, Officer Anne Lewis herself. Uh, Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen. Yes. Uh, she's who, Pam. I want to establish a new uh, a sort of trope here. Uh, it, it's, it's like Chekhov's wedding. It's the opposite of Chekhov's gun. If a character at the beginning of a yeah. movie is very, very adamant that they have to make it back in time for their wedding. They will not end up married to that person at the end of the film. There's, they're not even going to be with that person at the end of the film. The world's biggest red flag. If you're not even seeing the the, the other, the yes. husband or who, like the other person, yes. like then, yeah, the, that person's obviously a stiff. But the, the idea that just her introduction is like, Okay, but you have to promise me the most important thing. My entire life depends on this night. It's like, spoiler, it's not going to. It's not going no. to. You're not, you're not going to marry this guy. So they're in high school, but she is also like eloping with him. Yes. Like yes. She, when, because when Rosie is talking about like her, her wedding, she's like, keep it down. I don't want people to hear. Yes. Yes, she My, is eloping. 
and he seems older possibly older right yeah um and he's just ready to make a career and make babies and have her you know be his partner and cooking meals or whatever he works in the exciting new industry of uh plastic furniture covers which is really going to take off huge i mean you know it it feels like they're maybe secretly eloping to bypass the parents and be like too late we already did it now we have sex that's why you do it. Yes, you're going to move in together or whatever, right? So you're going to have to elope. Yep. Uh, so um, we have Wendy Jo Sperber, who uh, so of course plays one of the disappearing disappearing siblings in Back to the Future. Her name is uh, what? Uh, her, what's the character's Rosie. name? Uh, Rosie. Yes, she rules. I love her. Uh, she's kind of like the most uh, fanatical, right? Like the most sort of uh, hysterical. She loves Paul. She loves Paul Paul correctly. Uh, And she's, yeah, she's right. She's just high energy too. Like she's a little more, I guess, shamelessly high energy than the other ones. Like, which, which I love. She's, she's in 1941. She's in used cars, like, and back to the future. Like you say, she's in a lot of those. And, and she was on um, bosom buddies with uh, T Hanks. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about this movie, like this. And then 1941 kind of established like this collection of Zemeckis players Mm. that appear in a lot of these movies, like the same. I can't remember the actor's name. The guy who plays Jimmy Olsen in the Superman movies. Yes. Yeah. uh, Mark McClure. Mark McClure. McClure. Yeah. He is uh, Marty McFly's brother. Older brother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Eddie um, Deason shows up in nineteen. I believe he's again. also in used yes. cars. And yeah, Eddie Deason. I mean, Eddie Deason, we'll talk about him, but what we'll a, get to that in a, a little bit. Guy. Yeah. Uh, um, then you got Teresa but, but you Saldana. Do, I, yeah. Oh, well, no, I was on, just going to say of the four girls, it's like uh, uh, Wendy Jo Sperber is the one who is really sort of like pushing the plot into existence because she's the one who's like, I got to do this. I'll just die if I don't see the Beatles. And the other girls all have their sort of alternate viewpoints where it's like, Nancy Allen is just sort of along for the ride, trying to be a good friend. She thinks she doesn't really need to do this, but she's the one who ends up getting the most affected by it. Then you have uh, Teresa Saldana, who's Grace, uh, who is the aspiring photojournalist who really sees that she was able to get some good pictures of the Beatles. This could make her entire career. She's she's the craftiest one. She's the one figuring out like you need to rent a limo. You need to go on the floor below. Right. right? Like she she's not going to just charge head first into Paul. Like she's, she's trying to figure out a back one. way. Yeah. Uh, and like, then you have right, Susan Kendall Newman, who is Paul, uh, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's daughter. And does this movie and Robert Altman's A Wedding in the same year has an uncredited role as a pharmacist in Slapshot and never acts again. Commits most of her mm-hmm. life to philanthropy and protest. She's pretty good in this movie. Yeah. I think she's very good. And she's the one yeah. who is uh, anti-Beatles and is using Beatlemania as, uh, trying to use Beatlemania as an opportunity to message larger issues. Well, she likes folk music. She likes authentic. Yes. You know, she likes Dylan. She likes Joan Baez. She likes this sort of like the real stuff, not this pop. But she likes that they're also speaking to the the ills of society and that she yes. feels she needs yes. to refocus up the youth of America. You got to pay attention to the lyrics. Yes. And and so, yes, within the, the web of, of who these characters connect to, you have Nancy Allen's uh, uh, fiance, who you almost never see uh, until the very end. Then you have um, Saldana has roped McClure into this, uh, who is sort of the nice boy she is. Will they or won't they energy with, but always seems too nervous to actually ask her out, make a move. And importantly, he plays the accordion. A poorly plays the accordion. Also, he can kind of drive a car. (laughs) 
Sure. Kind of. Right. <laughs> Little nervous about it. Well, especially because he's driving right. this fucking purse. He's driving this goddamn boat. And then you have Bobby D'Amico is like the the greaser guy who literally jumps into their car. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like the end of Fast Ampersand Furious from window okay. to window in motion. Oh, yes. Like, none of them like him. No, none of them like him. He's a pain in the uh, ass. Oh, I like him. He's a great guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ben likes him. None of the characters in the movie like him. He's thirsty on Maine. He sprays beer into the face of, of the driver. Yeah, he's got yeah. no respect. I get it. He, I'm with him, He hits man. on those two ladies, and when they just mention the Beatles, he's like, you're going to make me puke over here. What's going on? <laughs> like, you know, he's, he's I mean, I, I admire his, he, I mean, he tries to take the whole fucking movie down with an axe. Like, he is he impressively also, committed literally. to hating the Beatles. Yes. Mm-hmm. He also won't stop hitting that I want to hold your clams joke, which I have no respect for anyone <laughs> Who doubles Trying down to try on a bit something. that hard? No, of okay. Can not. I actually no. uh, raise a question about that? Because um, so again, there are five quotes from this movie on IMDb. Mm. Um, so I always heard it as clams, but in the the Criterion essay by Scott Tobias, uh, he writes uh, that it's I want to hold your glands. Yeah, I heard glands. Is this like a like a like what is it? Blue dress, black dress, or gold dress, or whatever thing? I don't wow. really get glands, though. That's not funny. I thought it was a weird sexual thing, basically. Clams could be sexual, too. It's definitely sexual. Whatever he's doing is yeah. sexual. But it's a joke that no one finds funny except for him, and he keeps repeating it. I don't understand how someone could do that. It's, like, so <laughs> wild to just, like, hold your friends hostage and do a bit over and over again over, like, years for your own amusement. It just feels so perverse to me. I don't understand why anyone would put up with it. Anyway, um... Uh, they come across a little boy. Uh, this is uh, the Newman character is the one who interacts with him most and D'Amico. But he's a little boy who's a Beatlemaniac who's got the haircut. His dad wants him to get a military crew cut. But he's holding Mana in the form of three tickets to the Ed Sullivan show. Yes. And uh, and uh, wait, what's what's the name of the greaser character again? Tony. Uh, it, is Tony, Tony, Tony Smarco. Tony aggressively tries to just cut this kid's hair off, yes. like in yep. public. He's being a sports. big old bully. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, while they're all waiting outside the plaza or wherever it is they're supposed to be, is it the Four Seasons? The Four Seasons. I can't remember. What no, it is. it's it it's is the plaza. plaza Hotel, it's the plaza. New York's yeah, finest yeah, yeah. hotel experience. Yeah. But it's shot in L.A., so it's not yes. really the plaza. Almost all of this movie is shot on the Universal backlot, and Spielberg talks about that in that, that little featurette. Which, by the way, Zemeckis, to me, is the Universal backlot. Because, like, Back to the Future totally. as well. Like, you know, he's such a Universal backlot guy. Like, that kind of, like, nice uh, movie version of America. But also, it, it is that wild thing of like Spielberg talks about oh the way you just you filled up the streets and the way you dressed it and putting smoke coming out of the manhole covers like it was the first movie shot on the universal like uh, uh street stages that actually looked like somewhat real to me and not like a back lot and then back to the yeah. future you're like we I feel like we talked about this in another episode maybe we'll certainly talk about it in the future hint hint future but um 
the fact that that Hill Valley set is in like 87 million things, mm-hmm. but you think of it as Hill Valley. Like when you watch Hill Valley, you don't think of the movies that came before it or the movies that came after it. He somehow makes that feel like a tactile place. And this is another example of just like, I, I didn't, like, I live in New York City. I know what New York City looks like. It wasn't like I felt like this is New York. They clearly shot on the real streets, but it also did not feel like I was looking at it back. No, it, it, it's it's very well done, especially considering that I'm sure this movie was not, it was $2.8 million. You know, like it was not an expensive movie. And you're right. It it, it feels, the very verisimilitude is, is there. Like it feels New right. York to me. Like when they pull up to the Ed Sullivan Theater, which again is also on the back a lot, watching this again, I was like, that must be the one that they at least did in New York. Like that, that must be a yeah. real location. I don't know though. Cause the, how many alleys have you guys ever been in, in New York city? And it's always in movies with like that are set in New York. There's not a lot of alleys, honestly. No, no. I just not meant that like the, the front of the building, uh, mm-hmm. like, like the, the alley, definitely not, but you know, that about the one alley in New York, that's in every movie, right? Uh, the one like in Chinatown. Yeah. yeah or Cortland Soho. alley. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right, Cortland yeah, Alley right. has been used. Anytime you see a New York Alley in a movie, it's just Cortland Alley. It's the one. Um, it's the one. I <laughs> have shot so many videos there just because it, it's the only place that looks like a New York Alley. So oh, there's yeah. just like production value immediately. But that's just it. It's And there's like all these like fire escapes there. It's great. I think I've maybe filmed four different web series in Cortland Alley. I'm looking at photos now and I'm having a lot of really negative muscle memories come back to me. There's always a photo shoot there every time I walk by. Always. Uh, The final main main character, major character here is Eddie Deason, who I don't know if you guys checked out Eddie Deason's Wikipedia page, but it is a journey. Uh, I guess not. I mean, I know Eddie Deason. Let's see what, what's, uh, what's going on in his Wikipedia page though. Okay. So w- my question for you guys is when did you first become aware of Eddie Deason? Greece, I think definitely. Cause I saw Greece when I was a little kid, right? Like, and, uh, like, you know, that, that's where like, cause he is to be clear, Eddie Deason is like, the nerd uh, for the 70s and 80s, right? Or I guess, yeah. is that the best? Like he is Hollywood's version of a nerd. F- f- the, yeah, anyone who's doing a nerd is kind of doing an Eddie Deason kind of thing, right? Because my thing was like, I think I saw Grease when I was like a little kid, but I have not mm-hmm. seen it since then. Uh, so uh-huh. I knew him from, well, I loved Dexter's Lab. Yeah, he's Mandar. When, sure. when I was like 12 years old, he's, he's Mandar. The best. He, like yes. the most iconic voice. I uh, like genuinely when I was 12 years old, my family got a cat and I insisted that the cat be named Mandark. And we had it for like 15 years. Wow. I loved Mandark. Mandark rules. God, and Dexter's Lab is so good. I hope that holds up. I it holds up. It holds up perfect. It's fucking Gendy, Tartakovsky. It holds up. Until they rebooted it yes. without Gendy. I was about to say then, it does. It, it's the early seasons that he was involved with, right? And then it, they add, yeah. they, they change it up, and it gets kind of bad, right? He did three seasons. It's on. Yeah. It's on HBO Max now. It fucking yeah. rules. It holds up yeah. beyond belief. That show is so much more experimental than people give it credit for. It's perfect. I loved it. It's to be like, I was so obsessed with it good. when it was uh, whatever, just constant repeat on Cartoon Network. Um, but so I knew just Mandark. I didn't know who yeah. did the voice. I just loved Mandark. And then, like six years ago. I watched 1941 for the first time and lost my fucking mind because suddenly a guy with Mandark's voice was a real person. And I just assumed that that was like 
a voice that like Tom Kenny did or something. I didn't know there was just a person who is Mandark. See, this is my thing. My mind jumped to, oh, this must be how like all of Hank Azaria's characters on The Simpsons are his bad impressions of different movie stars. Like right. the way that he talks about like Wiggum is Edward G. Robinson and like <laughs> Moe is his Pacino and stuff. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that Mandark is someone like Tom Kenny dining out on this character actor's real voice. And mm-hmm. then you realize, no, this is this guy's real fucking voice. This is what he does. And as you said, he mostly has transitioned into voiceover in the later half of his career. He sort of talks about, his Wikipedia page feels very much uh, maintained by him. But talking about how his live action film work sort of dried up in the 80s due to a number of things. One is which he's apparently been plagued with an inability to remember lines his entire (laughs) life. He tried to be a stand-up comedian at first and gave up because he couldn't remember his own routines. He was gonged on the gong show, I believe, for very similar reasons. By Paul yes. Williams. By Paul yes. Williams, of all people. Correct. But um, but but then he switched to acting. He started auditioning. Grease was the breakout. And then uh, uh, Zemeckis really kind of takes him under his wing and goes like, oh, this is one of my stock company guys. But there's the thing where it's like he is this as I'm, I'm looking at his Wikipedia pages it notes he he wanted to voice Roger Rabbit and he loses yes. that role to Charles Fleischer. Wanted to play Judge and, Doom, lost that role right. to Christopher Lloyd. It, it feels like from and again, this is just from the Wikipedia page, but it's also it's hard not to think about it. Like he kind of suffered from not being in Revenge of the Nerds because it was like finally they made a big blockbuster movie about nerds and he yes. didn't get to be in it. Like, even though they are doing an Eddie Deason kind of thing, right? Like the everyone, they're dressed like him, they're acting like guy. him. Yes, yes. He makes it sound like they pointedly didn't hire him. I mean, the quote they have here right. is he was deemed uh, uh, too geeky uh, <laughs> that they would rather dress up, quote unquote, normal people as nerds than book the real thing. He says sure. it's still the thing he gets recognized for the most, despite him not being in the movie. But that's like his arc from like, you know, the 70s into the early 80s is like Revenge of the Nerds kind of ends his career because suddenly other people just start being able to make money doing Eddie Deason impressions rather than having to hire Eddie Deason himself. Um, I just also want to call out he apparently had a starring role in a 1984 film that has what is now officially my favorite title of all time. He played the villain, mad scientist Menlo Schwarzer in the film Surf 2 colon The End of the Trilogy. <laughs> there you go. Which surf, is like, it's like a, Roman a surf. numerals yes, 2. Yes. The it's end like of the a trilogy. parody of surfer movies, right? Like it's some weird, look at this. Yeah, he's in it. He's got a big hat I'm seeing. Wait, Eric Stoltz is in it? Eric Stoltz is in it. Uh, Eddie Deason is top build. Uh, there, of course, was no Surf 1. It doesn't exist. There's only Surf 2, the end of the trilogy. Uh, I, I want to see this thing so fucking badly. The tagline for the movie is, the movie that gives insanity a bad name. I believe it is on YouTube, Griffin, if you wish to uh, if you wish to enjoy it. I think it's easily viewable these days. It used to be a cult object, it looks like. I will say, I'm glad that, like, I... I've, I'm not a huge fan of the Polar Express, but I do love that Eddie Deason comes back in it. I can't wait. 
That's interesting. Huh. Okay. Yes. Well, anyway, I love, right. I love the Zemeckis players. We're meeting them all here. It's much like Demi. Yeah. But they said Deezen was very much a, a thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, Grease, he's mostly used as like a sight gag, right? Like they use yeah, him yeah. as sort of like he's a, nerd. A, a, a fucking rim shot at the end of sequences to get a pie in the face or whatever. This, uh, Gail said he wrote this character based on a real guy he knew who was insufferable. And Deezen walks in <laughs> and they're just like, well, done. Right. We got it. Here we go. Like fucking job's done for us. Deezen is like a self-professed. He claims that he's the he biggest Beatles, the Beatles fan right. in right. the world. So it, it the fact that he seems to be so plagued by not remembering dialogue and that hurting his career, you have to wonder if like half of his monologues in this movie are just him stream of consciousness spewing out shit. Yes. I mean, that is definitely he's so good, though. He it's one of the you just can't fake what he's doing, like the his weird sort of disconnection from conversation, like the way yes. he kind of just talks through people. And like, isn't really hearing what they're saying and just kind of has his weird monologues. Like he's, he's, he's great. He's very, very funny. Well, it's also just that weird thing of like, he's one of these guys who would seem like a cartoon character, except you can tell this is really who he is, that he's not putting on a voice, that he's not dressing himself up, right? That this actor is, is pretty close to what he's playing. And then also that he's one of these bizarre performers who is, in no way naturalistic, but it's so clear that this is his actual course of behavior that the weird stiltedness of it becomes very honest because it's like, oh, the naturalism is the actor being comfortable being this uncomfortable and odd and stilted on camera, if that makes sense. Uh, it does. Yes. He just Definitely. never makes eye contact with anyone the entire film. Right. I think of him as, you know, Toby Radloff, the the... Uh, Harvey Pekar sidekick. Yes. Uh, who, you know, he's the other one. Like, the, both of those guys, similar kind of generation, where it's just like, yeah, you can't fake this. This is just a, a type of a person. The um, internet doesn't yeah. exist. I'm, yes, my brain yes, is yes. the internet. Yes. Right. Exactly. He doesn't feel exactly. like an actor. He feels like, like as if Zemeckis or Gale had some weirdo friend that they just dragged yes. into the movie and said, right. do that thing that you do all the time. Which I guess, I mean, he wasn't their friend, but it's almost kind of what's happening. Right. Well, and the character, the guy they based it off of, Gail said, is like a guy who drove me absolutely insane. And Deezen somehow makes this character kind of appealing because he is so earnest and good natured, even if he's like so bizarre, you know? Yeah, he's not a malicious person. He's just a, no. right. He's a sort of a buffoon. And like it's also kind of funny when he's he interacts with uh the Wendy Joe Sperber character Rosie right and like after a while they're 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 at such similar energy levels that she's like I guess you're my boyfriend he's like what no I only care about the Beatles like you know like he's like that's just that's not his agenda it's like two Furbies like put next to each other talking to each other and it's like I guess that's a conversation and 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 she and he's like I thought you loved Paul and I love that thing where she's like well yeah Paul I mean but he's Paul like which yeah. I am like she, he's he Paul is like just this godly figure to her he's not like she doesn't really expect that she's gonna have a conversation with him she just wants to like touch him like right. she just has this right. weird urge where she's like I just have to be near him something's gonna happen if I do that it's religious for her uh yes can I also just throw out last real life Eddie D's in fact from his uh Wikipedia 
Uh, for over a year on his official website, Deezen featured a difficult Beatles trivia quiz I know. I've devised been looking by for this. Deezen himself with a $100 prize for anyone who could answer all of the questions correctly. Deezen later in an interview revealed that nobody had ever claimed the prize. No, it is absolutely impossible. I don't have the answer to any of these questions. I found it. It's 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 crazy. I love the the plot point of uh, the trivia question of who's the, the youngest radio show. Beatle. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. Right. And and they interpret it differently. Where Wendy Jo Sperber thinks of it as who is the youngest, and Deason thinks of it as who is the youngest in terms of being a Beatle because they joined the group last. <laughs> like he is right. so wildly overthinking it and overthinking the fact that everyone else must be overthinking things to the same degree. And then that pays off. It pays fucking. Yes, it pays off, off which is hilarious. I love that all four of them get to the concert in different ways. I mean, I know we're jumping all over the place, but it is one of these movies that's so. Uh, uh, split up and episodic. It's hijinks. They're trying to get to the show, right? They all have their little adventures. They're all, we know, we kind of know they're all going to end up probably at the show, right? You know, like, or whatever, like by hook or by crook, you know, but yeah, we're, right. it's, it's a bunch of different adventures. God, the physical comedy is wild. The part where Rosie falls out of the moving car. Ugh. Love that. It's incredible. Right, she's trying to get to the phone booth to answer the question, yeah. Right, and kind of the notion that they're all somewhat superhuman when they have Beatles, yes. Beatlemania surging through them, that it like <laughs> sort of activates some new power for them. Right, well, that's why the, the adults are all scared, because yes. their children are turning into these like superhuman monsters. Well, right, and you have these cops being like, stop! And like the, the kids are like barreling through cops and like attacking them. Dick Miller is so funny. They're in this destroying movie. the cops. It's the kids gaining superpowers and yes. going to war with the police and kicking them in the shins. Yeah, God. Dick, is Dick Miller another Zemeckis movie? He is, right? Does he count as a Zemeckis player? I don't think so. He's a Corman guy and he's yeah. a big Joe Dante guy. He's in every single Joe Dante movie. I'm trying to see if he is in even one more Zemeckis movie. He's in used cars. Um, okay. I, I'm not. And 1941, but that's obviously not right. Um, right. Love Dick Miller, though, obviously. Yeah. But then, no, after this, it's he, he moves to the, the, the Dante zone primarily. Um, yes, it, it is like the, the dynamic between the cops and the kids where the cops kind of hate that this is the fucking beat they're on. And also that somehow this has become the most be difficult beat they've ever worked. Like right. the resentment of we have to fucking protect these limeys combined with how is this so hard? How is this the thing that's like physically knocking the shit out of me? And that's the thing that like wins Janice over because she hates the Beatles because they're just this frivolous pop stuff and they're not about like they're not singing about real issues like the protest music she likes. But then when like the Beatle fans like protect her and the kid from the cops, suddenly like that's like her wake up moment where it's like, oh, wait, maybe this is like an anti-establishment thing. Maybe I yeah. do like this. Yeah, and that it is like it's its own counterculture, like that it's not in competition and that there there are also things that can come out of this, this nascent right. sort of movement that's building around this band. And I love that whenever you see the Beatles, who obviously you only see the backs of their heads or whatever, you hear their voices. But like, you know, when they come into the hotel room, when Nancy Allen's hiding under the bed, they're singing the Beach Boys because obviously they were obsessed with the Beach Boys and always like felt inferior to them. And like, and they seem kind of blase about the show and they're like, God, we sound bad. Like, is this even like going to work? Like, you know, like they're, yeah. they're kind of just like, oh, whatever. Like, 
it reinforces that the Beatles were not really into their own godhood, you know, especially no. right now. Yeah. I just kept thinking about, because we, we so recently did our Beyond the Lights episode, so I watched that movie so recently, and that's a movie that's like someone desperately trying to attain this level of fame in a very manufactured, like, what are all the chess piece moves I need to make with the giant corporation behind me and my mother as a manager and all this sort of stuff, and she's, like, totally collapsing inside. And this is a movie where it's just, like, part of the magic of the Beatles and how they hit in a way that is hard to replicate is that they just seemingly were like, oh, I don't know, we like playing. And, like, even when they were at the eye of, like, the hurricane, they were just like, this is weird, isn't it? It only somehow stirred up the chaos around them even more that they seem so sort of like confused and unaffected by the chaos. Right. And you have like reporters being like, Paul, Paul, like, what about that? And then he's just like, well, I don't know, do I? You know, like they, they would give like, I like, like to put jam in right. my shoes, don't I? Like they were always giving these fucking nonsense answers. That early interview scene where the girl is like, I have to marry like John or whatever. And, and he's like, isn't he already married? And she's like, yeah, but what if she dies? Like, yes. There could because, be a well, you know, there's divorce or death. <laughs> right. yeah. So that's right. Her little trio is her and, um, uh, Smirko and the kid, all three of them want to get to the concert. They have such a weird relationship with the kid because it's like they're protective of him, but they're also openly just using him for the tickets. He's the only one who really wants to go. Then, you know, he, the uh, Smirko wants to go to literally like fucking like clown the Beatles, like to take them down in their biggest moment, sabotage their entire American career. And uh, Newman, you know, ostensibly like wants to use it as like a protest moment. Um, So you have these three people unified who all have very different objectives in terms of what they want. Sperber just wants to win tickets. Like she knows everything. And she knows that between all these radio stations, uh, somewhere, somehow, eventually, she's going to be able to call in and, and prove her knowledge and win something, which is how she ends up with Deason, who is similarly fanatical and even less socially competent. Who has basically just been living in the Plaza Hotel on the seventh <laughs> yes. floor for like an unknown period of time. Uh, just He just stole a key and took over a room. It's like basically Frank Weiler shit. selling sheet swatches, yes. Yes. Yeah, Um, I mean, the fact that his holy grail is just a piece of grass, like a a piece of like- The grass. Just the ground, like it's like a square foot. And he's like, I don't know which blade Paul stepped on, but it was one of them. And it's wrapped in tinfoil. It's just the unveiling of that is beautiful. When you meet the character, he's ripping up carpet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a great moment. That's the best plot line, right? Like that's uh, that's the best plot line. I I mean I I love Nancy Allen's performance so much in you're, this. You're that's just RoboCop's fandom. You're just you're you're too in the bag for RoboCop. Anything Nancy Allen does, you're like, well, that's the best. The the payoff with her having this like like after she ditches, she just blows up her life and yeah. uh, like like calls off her wedding, ditches her fiance, and then just like breaks down sobbing watching this concert and and grabbing her dress, like the shot of her like like clenching her dress. That to me, that's like unexpectedly moving in a movie yes. that has been just so manic up till now, and so the the payoff of that makes it like maybe my favorite, just because I, I I'm like. 
I feel something after I've just been like laughing through the whole thing. This is my argument. I don't think she's the best plot line, but I think she's the best individual performance and the most satisfying character journey. And the other moment is like when she sneaks into the hotel and has the moment where she's just gawking at the guitar and everything. That sequence is pretty incredible, especially because she's the one who feels sort of most like apathetic about all of this compared to the rest of the group. Uh, you know, she has no real clear gain. She's like, yeah, the Beatles, of course they're good, but my marriage is the real thing. And then she has this moment when she's like up close with their guitar that feels like she's seeing the eye of God. It's also very sexual. Yes, yes. Like when she puts her ring in her shoe and then just strokes the neck of Paul's bass. I think they represent some sense of freedom for her and the idea that she doesn't need to like perhaps live the exact same life that, like, the previous generations have, that she doesn't need to be married by 18, mm-hmm. you know, and, like, with kids by by 20 and everything. Yeah. No, of course not. Like, she should have a youth. Like, like she should have yes. a youthful, like, experience as a person, uh, which yeah. I guess, you know, right, teens barely, you know, teens are brand new, basically. The idea that anyone cares about that, section of your life as a section of like, you know, as a sort of independent section of adolescence. But, um, yeah, I, I just like the, right. I like that. It acknowledges the sort of sexual awakening aspect of Beatlemania, which is obviously part of it. Um, and she's great. I love Nancy Allen, very underrated actress, Nancy Allen. Cause I think she was seen as a bad actress in the eighties. Uh, right. Like, you know, um, yeah, the Palma I movies also were feel sort like, of like, right. Yeah. Go ahead. The De Palma movies are so stylized and her performances right. in them are so stylized that I think people wrote it off as like she's a bad actress because she wasn't a naturalistic actress. But she was but I doing love her in the what movies. was asked of her in those films. She's matching yeah. those films perfectly and her performance in this is really nuanced and naturalistic and really sweet. I, I also think there is that sexist thing very often where when a director has... Uh, when when, when a, a actress's career is primarily in their husband's films people tend to discount them as an actor in their own right and more as just like, oh, they're like an extension of the director. They're like a piece. Like they're using their wife as like a prop, you know? And I I think, yeah, because like a lot of her biggest works were the De Palma movies and they're so specific and uh, she worked with him so much. I don't know. I think she's a really underrated actor in general. Me too. And Officer Lewis rules. Uh, Their friendship (laughs) is the last uh, true good thing left in this world. So, um that is that plot line. I, I like not I'm not putting a bow on it, but just we're talking about all this stuff out of order. Uh, I do like that Nancy Allen has this like total like spiritual awakening moment and sexual awakening moment. And Sperber just faints immediately, misses the entire concert. <laughs> and when she comes to and they tell her that she's happy about it, like she's, yeah, she's like, like, of great. course, mm-hmm. I just had to know I was in the room like I, I, seeing the concert's almost irrelevant. Right, because my mom's uh, description of, I think she was at Candlestick Park, but it was, it's much like Shea Stadium. It was that tour, as I said. Like, it's just, she was just totally frustrated. She couldn't hear a thing. Everyone yeah. was screaming. And it was just like, you either have to, because the whole, you know, the sound systems just could, could not stand up to 55,000 screaming people. Like, you either had to just give yourself over to it and be like, yeah, no, I'm not actually going here to see and hear the Beatles. I'm right. going here to have a collective maniacal experience. Like, 
And like, I think my mom was more like, but don't you, uh, right. You know, like, it's just like, I guess I'm just going to look at the Beatles, you know, standing on home plate or whatever, like standing on the pitcher's mound. Like, I'd be like, okay, well, there they are. It's also like Sperber's going to spend the next 70 years of her life telling people about the time she literally fainted at the Ed Sullivan show. Like, Mm -hmm. she's going to dine out on this. It's a better story than if she had watched it and had the same experience as everyone else. It's a fair point. Real quick, can we just touch upon the mustard boy? Because mm. I mm. found yeah, that it's a big third act twist disconcerting. Sure. I didn't love that whole moment in the movie. I understand that the commitment to her wanting to get the photograph, she'll go this far, but rough. It, it's a type rough. of comedy that I think peaks late 80s, early 90s, which is like. What's the weirdest fucking sexual fetish you can give someone? You know, he wants like to be a sandwich. Like comedic set pieces of like, what's this guy's fucking kink? And having a scene where the person kind of gets like embarrassed and someone gets the upper hand on them. I think the joke of him being like, it's going to be a picnic and then we cut. And then it turns out he just wants mustard on his head, like is somewhat funny just because I assume he has a, a much more pedestrian role play he wants to do. And I agree. Cutting with you. back mid role play where he's like, "Yeah, I am a sandwich. That's what's going on here." Okay. And you keep hearing his voice before the, it cuts back because he's just like yeah. saying like faster, faster, faster. Right. And uh, so it, it's they they build up to the reveal of and that's the whole thing. Like when I first saw this, I was it's very silly. I was dreading what it was going to be for a while, and so it was kind of like a, a relief that like, oh, it's. It's it's just silly. Well, the yeah. and the initial fear also is that you're thinking like you're like, oh, my God, is she going to like, you know, take the place of a call girl? Is she going to just try right. like, you know, like what, what on earth is going on here? And you realize like because she needs 50 bucks to to get in the back door. But no, she's yeah. she's got a whole blackmail scheme worked out, essentially. She's she's the mover and the shaker. She's already always looking at the big picture, looking for an angle. Yes. Yeah. And he wants to be a sandwich. Look, the man <laughs> right. wants to be a sandwich. <laughs> and it also like in this sort of Zemeckis way where it's like you got to just move all the pieces to the right position on the board. That misunderstanding is what pushes Jimmy Olsen to finally have the courage to be like, I need to actually tell her how I feel and ask her to the dance and, and go after to also her. straight up do a line that they would just repeat for Back to the Future. Uh, roads where we're going, we don't need roads. No, exactly. You know, he busts in and shouts that. My name is Marty confusing. McFly. Is that, is that the line? <laughs> I got it. You might not get it, What's but your kids line? are going to love it. You know, he, he busts in and says, get your goddamn hands off her. Oh, right. Sure. Right, right. Yes, yes, yes. Very true. You, you have to wonder if Eddie Deason was ever in the mix for George McFly or if they were just <laughs> like, we need him to be. Five percent more normal, right? You can't. Yeah, it can't be. Although Crispin Glover is arguably weirder in a way, but in a in a quieter way. Also weirder in a way where you're like, well, this is an actor making weird choices. I yes, can feel yes. comfortable. Right. Whereas right, with right. Deason, you'd be like, does this guy know that he's being filmed? The thing is also right, like right. Glover gives a weird performance, but there's also like dynamics that he can modulate. Yes. It can yes. go big and it can go quieter. And Deason is just like at a 10. At He's all, all guitar time. solo. He has one yeah. thing that you you hire him to do. And yes. that's what he does. And it's not going to change at all. It's like, I feel like you can't direct Eddie Deason. No, absolutely not. Probably I not. Think, like for how much he talks about 
on his own Wikipedia and in interviews, like his career sort of drying up and everything. It feels like that's a lot of it. And animation is a pretty good lane for him to be in, which he has uh, done successfully. He's like either snap, crackle or pop. He's like a bunch of different cartoon spokesmen. Yeah, he almost was the Affleck duck. Uh, but pre-Chihuahua, when Taco Bell had uh, uh, a cat and a dog who were mascots, he was one of them. He has a lock on the annoying character roles. And, yes. and he's fucking Mandark. That's, you know, Hall of Fame performance right there. Uh, I do love, though, talking about, like, how cartoonish this movie is. And uh, Zemeckis and Gale talked about how influenced they were by, like, Looney Tunes and Tashlin and Chuck Jones and all that sort of stuff. The reveal of Deezen dressed up as the elevator operator is such Bugs Bunny shit that she's like, finally, I'm safe. And then he turns around and it's him in a disguise. <laughs> He's breaking levers. He pulls the lever out. Yeah. Don't worry, yeah. I got it. I can fix it. I can fix it. That's the one time that he actually like I get annoyed at him yes. because I'm like, you are. Dude, I love you. But if you fuck up her chance to like, get to the yeah. theater, that's that's like crossing a line. Yeah. I just knew they'd figure it out. But I, I also love that he doesn't he's sort of out of it until he realizes she has the tickets and then he's like, Oh my god, we, we have no air. Like it's what? funny. Tickets it's funny. Now. It's, it's a and funny he breaks movie. down a glass door. Thanks, sir. <laughs> I also like that when she's operating the elevator, she can never line it up and she's always just yeah. like mm-hmm. jumping in and out of the elevator anyway. Um which is also, so I mean, not a clear line there, but uh, when I watched the lift short film afterwards, mm. I'm just like, okay, okay, we, we, we've got the same kind of like old school elevator. I'm just, I'm always looking for those little like connective tissue between like multiple things he did. Actually, I'd not to derail this, but can I rewind to the very first shot of the movie? Uh, yes, sure. I just want to quickly say, uh, man, Robert Zemeckis, you could call him the special features deleted scenes on the DVD for uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, because this guy likes his elevator antics. <laughs> wow. I mean, I saw where it was going. But, uh, yes, opening shot, you know. Patrick. Take us back. Um, so, uh, in terms of, like, one of the things I love about this movie, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it on this episode is... Uh, I always find it fascinating when a debut film is like when, when someone shows up fully formed to their debut mm-hmm. film, when all of the pieces that they become known for are just already there. And you and this movie is that in so many ways, whether it's just like, OK, his, you know, his fascination with uh, like with just like uh, historical moments of the past that he lived through, like major points in the, tw- like uh, inserting fictional characters into big moments in, in 20th century American history, whether it's that like, you know, sort of screwball mechanical, like clockwork precision of plotting. And you, even the first shot, because Zemeckis likes to do a thing with his opening shots that where, especially if you look at like back to the future or Forrest Gump or used cars, they tend to be these elaborate tracking shots that are like extended and like reveal multiple things or like follow an object through something. And the opening shot of this movie, it's like a simplified version of what he would go on to do. It's like, it's still a shot that like goes through like a few positions and reveals like three things at once. And so it's not like a really noteworthy, notable shot or like opening shot, but it is like it, right there. You can see the beginning of a thing he would do in like every movie going forward. And I just wanted to point that out. 
Yeah, that you're you're talking about what comes after the opening credit sequence, right? No, it's uh, it's the first shot where it's the rev- it's like opens up with a close up of like the words like "Do not cross." Oh, and then yes, it pulls yes, back yes, into this yes. crane shot, and it's like he'll do a more elaborate one. Yeah, you'll talk about it next week on used cars. But I, but like right from the beginning, he was always like, "Okay, I want my opening shot to like have like multiple stages to it and reveal multiple things." It's like I want Give you to information, start- bring you into the world. Yeah, yeah. with a sort and of also also be kind of show-offy, like right at the start. I was going to just say that opening credit sequence using so much uh, stock footage is, I think, really important and wise for a movie that has the right approach, which is no one's going to accept uh, anyone else playing the Beatles, make the Beatles feel mythical, cleverly use as much original footage as we can. But like starting it out with like all this sort of like hard day's night, black black and white, sort of like here's the true mania of the thing is such good mood setting. And especially for like, I feel like younger generations or future generations watching that down the line, people like us to be like, right, it was this insane. Like you do need to remind yourself that it was actually this insane before the movie you're about to watch starts playing out at such a manic madcap speed um and then yes it's like one of those things that's just such a clever fucking move and feels like a tip towards like the things that Zemeckis would become obsessed with and possibly become overwhelmed by but the we're gonna deal with the concert by shooting around the actual concert as much as possible this fucking gambit he comes up with of having body doubles perfectly mimicking out of focus in the background and then in the foreground, monitor showing what's happening on the camera. So you sort of get the best of both worlds. It doesn't just feel like you're using stock footage. It's integrated into the environment, into the movie we're watching. But you're also like, you're not going to get better than the actual Beatles. You're not going to make it any better than the actual thing. Uh, it's just, it's so simple. It's so lo-fi. It's so effective. And as like a comparison point, the guy he has, the impressionist who does uh ed sullivan is like good and he shoots him from a distance but you are never not aware of the fact that you are watching a man with weird like wax museum makeup doing an ed sullivan impression but it works for the movie and it works fun to impersonate ed sullivan yeah because he was a weird wax figure character in a weird absolutely But but it, it underlines how correct the choice is to deal with the Beatles themselves the way he did. That you're only ever yep. seeing the back of their heads, an isolated line, and then for their performances, it's the footage, and then it's some out-of-focus limbs in the background. I mean, it's basically just a simplified version of what he did in all of Forrest Gump. Yes, yes. It's a, right another way in which he's just sort of like calling out his future. Right. But like in that movie, we don't see Elvis's face, right? When he's like staying at the house. No. Right. And then they reveal like the footage on the TV. Right. Right. And then of course, right. There's all that other footage where he puts Forrest Gump into the historical settings. Yeah. Um, can I just say, because I want to hold myself accountable to this. So I'm going to say this on mic right now. Uh, David, you're about to get married to, to Forky. Sure. Uh you're going, uh, you're looking at me with dread. I'm not saying anything that you think I'm about to say. Okay. You're going on like a two week uh, work sabbatical as, as your uh-huh. honeymoon. So we're not recording. So we're banking up episodes before that, right? Okay. I have, I have purchased and my goal is in those two weeks, since we won't be recording and I won't have movies to watch for the show, I have purchased both 
the Forrest Gump novel and the sequel Gump and Co. And I want to read both Gump of them. and Co. Wow. Uh, they're very they're very much darker, I think. Uh, That's why I want to read right? them. That is I'm not sure, why I want to read yeah. them. Gump and Co. Gump is and written Co. after the release of the movie and features Forrest Gump, the man who Forrest Gump the movie was based on. Yes, exactly. Right. It's like a weird kind of jokey satire of the movie's success in a, or something. I, you should read him. I mean, you, I, I approve. In the first book, he goes into space and meets aliens, I believe. Once I read that, I decided I needed to track these down. Yeah. Yes, he definitely goes to space. I'm pretty sure I that's I believe he true. meets aliens. Um, are, th- are there any other things we want to talk about with this movie? Uh, is there much to say about the... Oh, 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 and another thing that Zemeckis brings back. The climax takes place during a lightning storm. <laughs> yes, right. yes, that's true. Yes, the, the lightning storm that is essentially God intervening and telling Bobby DeChico, like, you will not be stopping the Beatles. Like, you know, he's taking an ax to the satellite dish and <laughs> the lightning. And he's like, fine, I give up, you know. It's okay. I also, I love the the ending for the Saldana character in McClure. Oh, where, it's great. Right, she has the $50. She's... She's uh she's uh blackmailed the sandwich man. She has the backdoor <laughs> entrance. She sees the cops coming for him. She chooses to use the money to bail him out with a corrupt cop rather than get into the concert. Uh like she she makes the sort of human to human choice rather than the career choice and which gives him the courage to finally ask her to the dance. They have the sweet moment. You're like that's kind of nice, but it's still a bummer that she's the only one who doesn't get to go to the concert. And then the Beatles get in the backseat of their fucking car because they're parked in the right place, and the limo couldn't get to them. And that, like, just the reveal of she's there in the front seat, she's got her camera, they're all there in the backseat, and the Beatles manager is just saying, "Drive, drive, drive." I don't care if you're the right car. We have to get out of here. And the fact that the movie like ends. You have the other friends go, those Jersey license plates, it couldn't be. You don't even see her taking the photos or anything. They don't do anything more with it, but it's just the idea of, like, she's made out like a fucking bandit. She's going to get the best photos of all time. Her entire career is going to be made on this. Well, also, like, that her limo gambit worked eventually, right? Like, it actually Mm -hmm. finally pays off, yes. She got the guy. She got the car. She got the pics. Right. Well, yeah. that final moment is kind of, for me, the biggest difference between this and American Graffiti, because mm-hmm. like American Graffiti feels like the end of something. Yeah. It's like a last hurrah before it all kind of comes to an end. And this kind yeah. of ends with like the promise of like what this like this new wave of excitement that it like you know, arrived in the country and everyone like leaves this full of optimism for like, right. you know, like suddenly Pam like has like is now free and could do anything. Right. Her life has opened up. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, Grace gets her photograph. She gets like the, the Beatles yeah. connection. Maybe she is going to have that great career as a, a photojournalist. Right. Yes. Because and, uh, Rebecca's uh, an Rosie- optimistic guy. Rosie's going to have a really, really functional marriage to Eddie Deason. Everyone... <laughs> I do love that his name is Ringo Claus because his real name's Richard and he feels like if Ringo could change his name from Richard to Ringo, then everyone should change their name from Richard to Ringo. Yeah. Right, I mean, right. they should have done like a more American graffiti just called like, I want to hold more of your hands where we just return like a decade later. Now that the Beatles have broken up. I would love that, especially if it wasn't directed by Zemeckis and was directed oh, yeah. by someone else and half of the cast members sort of showed up and not really. 
Um, I also, uh, I wish that Fred Claus, uh, there was a third brother and it was Eddie Deason reprising his role of Ringo Claus. I wish it was Ring, Ringo, Fred and Santa Claus. Agreed. <laughs> they should, they should do that at least on Disney plus. Uh, David, we've done 1978 as like the year in box office, or have we not done that before? We have. That's that's the, have. like I I just don't think there's anything to be done. Like there's just so little. Star Wars was still the number one movie when this came out. That's oh, the wow. only thing I could tell you. Or I don't when know. If it's Superman. Number one, it's open? still playing. Superman is the number one movie of '78 for sure. I think so. This movie Huge came out in McClure. April. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Superman came out that Christmas. Um, but so, the other big movies of the year, Grease, Animal House, Heaven Can Wait. And this is why I remember that we had done this before. Every which way but loose, which um, so you're, you're looking at yeah. Deason and McClure, two of the biggest box office stars of 1978. <laughs> Deason's had a great year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you also got, of course, Hooper. Uh, Burt Reynolds's mm-hmm. big hit of the year. You got Jaws 2. Um, which stinks, right? But mm. uh, so Spielberg, right? Spielberg's already being sequelified. Yep. Uh, you got Up yeah. in Smoke is one of the big hits of the year. Uh, Cheech and Chong. Oh, wow. uh, the Deer oh. Hunter. The Deer God. Hunter, which wins Best Picture. Yeah, you an Can Up we, in Smoke fan, Ben? Oh, oh, fuck yes. Wait a second. You? Cheech and Chong is a franchise. Yes, right. Yes, they oh, are a franchise. Here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Whoo, baby. No, we're not. Get ready we're not for doing six months of campaigning. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> because they made like eight or nine. They made too many movies. You know, it's ben like wants up to do a Corsican Brothers commentary. Oh wait, no. I only thought it was the three. No, because well, he got smoke. up and smoke. Then yeah. Cheech and Chong's next movie. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, then you got Nice Dreams, uh, which is uh, sort of them right. doing an action movie, right? Uh, yeah. Then you got Things Are Tough All Over. I don't really know that one. I've never uh, then you got then, then then they went back to basics. Still smoking. Still smoking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you've got uh, you've got the Corsican Brothers. You've got that's um, the weird one. I remember that's the weird and one. being like, yeah. okay, I, now they've really the, lost it. Yeah, that's kind of the last live action movie, I guess. After that, they've done an animated yeah. movie, but uh, yeah, yeah, that one looks really weird. Jesus, and their animated adaptation movie, of uh, a French is, novella. Yes, it, go ahead. Yes, no, I was just gonna say their animated movie is called. Let me check the title here. Uh, Cheech and Chong's animated movie. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder uh, how how that they arrived at that title. That's really intense. Yes, I, really I wonder who the lead one. characters are, and also what medium they chose to realize their story. In. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing is that Cheech and Chong, right? They like they should feel they, like like one hit wondery, but of course, like Cheech Marin's such an amazing character actor. Like he's good anytime yeah. he pops, and he does so much TV. And then like Tommy Chong, right? He's like on that '70s show for forever, you know, right? He he would he would yeah. be in stuff. Keeps on selling water pipes. He's he's killing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, well, Patrick, as someone. As someone who watched all of uh, the Zemeckis filmography, do you have any guidance for us? Are there any things you want to sort of leave us with as we we embark on this journey? Ooh, that's that's a very good question. I will say um, I'm so excited to hear your take on the the most recent decade, the weird return to mm. prestige dramas that don't click with audiences. The, the the allied flight the walk uh, yeah. you know that that, that Marwin, Marwin obviously yeah the, the being decade the craziest of, of them all yeah exactly yep. it, uh, it is so wild how cleanly it almost tracks where you're just like two thousands mocap you know 
Like mm-hmm. you have the the two live action films at the beginning, but then he's like in mocap world. 2010s, yeah. he's trying to save the adult drama. Right. He's like, listen up, Hollywood. You don't make movies like this anymore. So I guess I got to do it. Right. But they're also right. insane. I mean, the big thing that it's funny that it like did not come up in this episode, but it's going to be such a major part. You'll, you'll just be talking about this for the next like five months mm-hmm. uh, is just technology. Yes, because yeah. It, it it's really a thing where it's like that's why like I think Back to the Future 2 is going to be a really interesting discussion because yes. like that like you know that right after Roger Rabbit and then like like just the, the way that technology is going to come to dominate more and more of your conversations. He he's always been a cutting edge guy yes. and it sort of gets ahead of him in a weird way. Like where it, right, he was ahead of it and then it flips. That was your whole take in your video on him, that he's like this ultimate toy guy. Like, that's the defining thing is how much he loves his toys. And it's a thing that comes up a lot on this podcast because a lot of these guys fall prey to it, where they make the one movie where they get all the toys and then they kind of can't go back to thinking any other way. They have to keep getting bigger or pushing new things. And it's like Ang Lee with the high frame rate, Peter Jackson with everything, you know? A lot of these guys just get stuck. The thing is, this is actually... This is kind of the the miniseries that you guys have been building to for years because you started with George Lucas, who was the ultimate yeah. example of it. Yes, and yes. now and Zemeckis is was kind of like he was like the next guy to get sucked into the yeah. digital toy world. Yeah, yeah, and and you look at like I feel like Ang Lee keeps on saying, or when he was promoting. Uh, Gemini Man, he kept saying, like, look, maybe I'm going to flop. People don't like these movies. That's fine. But, like, I have the clout to be able to try to push this technology, and I think it's important for future generations to have. And Zemeckis was saying such similar things during, like, the Polar Express Beowulf run, and everyone was like, shut up, stop it. Go back to using normal cameras. But now you're like... He did kind of work out the kinks for everyone else. Like everyone's fucking working on like the the shoulders of what he did. Avatar certainly would not have existed had Zemeckis not done those three movies. Oh yeah, right. Did he need to spend a full decade uh, doing that? Maybe not, but he did. He committed. But that's the thing. You also kind of can't argue with it. Big picture. Like you can argue with the individual films, and we yes. will. Patrick, yes. uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, long overdue. Thank you for me. Hell yeah. Um, people should follow everything you do on YouTube. By the time this comes out, the beard will be gone? The beard will be gone. Yeah, wow. it'll be gone not long after we record this episode. So I'll be able to see my face again, which will be right, exciting. Right now, your beard is bigger than your head. Yeah. Like I'm, oh, totally. I'm doing the exercise if like <laughs> if we flopped you, if we just turned your skull upside down, right. the beard half is is taller yeah. and broader than the rest of your skull. It's look, it's a weird time in everyone's lives. And yeah. uh, and a choice I made was to just not shave for like um, five months. But your quarantine videos have been great. And I, I have to say, in particular, I really admire the fact that you have been taking a strong stand in terms of like, we got to get out of the uh, echo chamber of just discussing the same four franchises and filmmakers <laughs> over and over again, that you openly are like, I don't care if I lose subscribers, I'll do an hour on every adaptation of Little Women, because if you have a platform, you want to try to start new conversations. Thank you. It's it, it's tough. YouTube is a, is a weird place where people are not really open to anything outside of the stuff they're already very familiar yeah. with, but I'm trying to do what I can. Yeah. 
Um, I, I think you're doing a great job. And also, uh, I should say that Patrick and I both co-plug the Playmobil movie, the most defended film of 2019, which we saw in theaters in a much simpler time. We handed over each of us a $5 bill. A crisp cash. $5 bill, no change back, sat, watched a first run screening of the Playmobil movie. We had no idea how good we had it. Movie theaters would never be that safe again. Tickets would never be that cheap again. Oh my god! If I could, if I could just go back to that theater feeling as safe as I did uh, in in December, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would watch the Playmobil movie every day. I know I have a tendency towards hyperbole, but I truly have never felt safer in my entire life than I did during that screening <laughs> of the Playmobil movie. Not since the womb. Not I mean, that's the, the thing. Like, in, we weren't thinking about all the things wrong with the world. We were just trying to figure no. out what was up with uh, Jim Gaffigan's magical hay that he was trying to sell, which Absolutely. they never really explain. That was the beauty of the Plan Bill movie was we we were so consumed by trying to figure out what was wrong with that movie <laughs> that all the other ills of humanity were suddenly out of mind, out of sight. Um, well, uh, thank you again for being here. Of and, course. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Uh, I'm excited for these five months we have ahead of us. Some weird things and also some of the biggest and most beloved movies ever made. Yep. It's going to be great. Knocking down some big guys. Um, so uh, keep tuning in for Podcast Away. I got to say, we we booked this season out pretty far in advance in terms of guests. I don't want to announce anything because we haven't recorded them yet, but I think we got a really good lineup of people coming for this one. And, it's uh, looking great. And a it's lot a of silver new faces, lining hopefully. of, of yeah, Zoom exactly. and distant records. We're going to have some people uh, who previously were unavailable. And uh, yeah, a lot of new faces. Couple some Angelinos, let's, let's say. And, let's right, say and some, some old friends. Yeah. Some Angelinos. We got some ho- yeah. Holly Weirdians uh, coming on the show uh, soon. Um, and uh, yeah, rate, 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 subscribe. Uh, go to uh, blankies.red.com for some real nerdy shit. Uh, you can go uh, uh, check out our, our merchandise uh, that we now have. It'll be in the description, uh, but our limited edition run of fifth anniversary designs for the live shows that could never happen. Um, so get those while they're hot. Uh, and uh, uh, thanks to Andrew Gouda for co-producing our show and Ben Hosley, Rachel Jacobs for editing assistance. Thanks to Joe Bonaparte Reynolds for artwork, Liam Montgomery for our theme song, And as always, above all else, I Want to Hold Your Hand is a movie about Mandark, Officer Lewis, and Jimmy Olsen hanging out together. And that's canon.